You understand the meaning of the word foreboding? As in badness is happening right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Well, you guys are a hell of a duet here. Why'd you start harmonizing? Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need you. Because lobsters live for over 100 years. Now what the hell are you waiting for? After me, there should be no more. So for one last time, make some noise. That's for John Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. Figured this went down. I mean, our guys go in, then the whole thing touches off, and you got a lot of firing, very close quarters. So that shooter, whoever he was, he was no amateur. I have not shared this around. I talked to this broad Lisette. She says it was a cop. My guys were doing something. I didn't know about it, trust me. You start looking for loose ends where your brother's boys are concerned. Where's that gonna fall? Now, what is going on here? We sold our shields off. High is better. I didn't know they died. You got anything you want to say to me? What do you think is going to happen here? Do you think we're going to go in the basement with Pop and smooth this over? All you got to do is say what needs to be said. End story. Be smart. They were protecting their own and they were burying the truth. Don't talk to me about the truth. You got no idea what it takes to do what we do. And your brother is in a bad hour here and the only way through this is you. I've done your kind of loyalty and it cost me too much, What did it Bob? cost you, right? It cost me everything. Okay, so here's the story with this movie, right? Is that Jim Caviezel? There's this movie called Sound of Freedom that Jim Caviezel is it Caviezel or Caviezel? It's Caviezel. It's right? Caviezel. It's Caviezel. Yeah. Jim Caviezel made a biopic of this dude who's like ex Homeland Security turned independent mercenary uh, <laughs> who busts sex trafficking rings, except like oh it God. all seems to be total bullshit. Uh, this guy may have never actually worked for Homeland Security. And as far <laughs> as I can tell, all he does is like kidnap adult consensual sex workers and claim he's busting like sex trafficking rings. But Jim Caviezel made a biopic of this guy. They shot it in 2018. It came out yesterday, Connor. Listeners, <laughs> we were recording this on July 5th. So they opened this movie on the 4th of July. Oh, Based man. on the business it did yesterday and what it's looking like for tomorrow, there is a non-zero chance that had they opened this on Friday, it would have outgrossed Indiana Jones at the box office. It's making that much, how much. How much has it made? It made $12 million in the past two days. What the fuck? Yeah. yeah. And those what are weekdays. That's a Monday man. and a Tuesday. Movies don't make money like that on Mondays and Tuesdays, especially oh, not. Man, and movies wanna... don't make money on the fourth. I want to see the on the on Fourth of July weekend. People are like, "Let's go see the drug tra- the the sex trafficking movie, the QAnon sex oh trafficking God. movie." Um, it's two and a half <laughs> hours long, which is the only reason I haven't seen it. Caviezel I mean, can't remember his lines anymore, right? After he got struck by lightning, that's the deal with him. <laughs> what he has to be given his. I, so you know he got struck by lightning when they were making uh, um, Passion of the Christ. When probably a sign. Probably a sign. <laughs> Here's it, how sold out the first of the three <laughs> remaining screenings are tonight. Like this movie's doing insane business. <laughs> so he got struck by lightning, and apparently he has like not. I don't know how to I don't know what to call it. It's not short term memory loss. It's not that he can't make new memories. It's that he just if it's like hard information. Okay. Like, l- legitimate hard information. He like can't retain it. So he can't remember his if 
this could just be a rumor for all I know. I've read it like multiple times, but apparently he like just cannot remember lines anymore. So he has to wear an earpiece while he's filming. Okay. And someone has to feed him the lines while 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 they're rolling. I, I, I think people make too much of a deal about that. Um, I think it's never idea... really bothered me. Uh, like Brando doing it because he just didn't uh, want to learn his lines and stuff like that. I actually think it would be fine. I actually I'm like more open to it on stage just because there's so much. And I feel yeah. like that could aid in the performance. Um, If you're able to do that, I mean, for I if I was acting, I don't think I would be able to because I would need to be in the moment of what I'm saying and not thinking ahead to what I will be saying while hearing it. But the thing with film is like, you're not saying that many lines uh, at any given go, you know? <laughs> sure. You know what yeah. I did this weekend, good Cole? I didn't Caviezel. tell you. Not good for doing. Jim Caviezel. He's a bad person. What'd you do? I uh, I made a pilgrimage to the site of the greatest upset in American sporting, if, of worldwide sporting history, Lake Placid, New York, where what happened in Lake the Placid? 1980... United States hockey team defeated the Soviet Union in the Olympics. Okay. Is is it not correct though that the degree to which that is an upset is like a um, thing how about Americans... you shut your mouth? How about you shut okay. your mouth, Cole? How That's about you shut... I've no, heard no, no, some no, you're right, you're right. You're yeah, right, that like right. yeah. that like we talk about that like it's the craziest upset of all time, but it actually like wasn't. It's just it was, a, a Cold it, War thing. It was kind of crazy. So do you like you understand the the kind of like base tenets yeah. of the story that yes. professionals couldn't compete on the American teams. Only yes. amateurs could compete at that time. All of our best hockey players were in the NHL. So they were essentially barred yes. from competing in the Olympics. The Soviet Union that did not have a real professional hockey uh, league because of the state of that single party communism yes. that was in charge. Essentially used the apparatus of communism to retain the best hockey players for the Olympic team. Um, so there, there is, it's, it's not like the upset isn't real. It is a real upset. It's I, I yeah. think, I think the way it gets a little inflated is like, it's not the Ivan Drago thing. These aren't like cyborg mutant. Yes. Like, you know what I mean? Like super, hero of men there's still just regular guys who are on the soviet hockey team and our the american team was still like the cream of the crop of ncaa yes. ch- champion hockey players yes so, it's not like the fucking bad news bears with a dog on the team the, the, the majority of whom who at least started had already been drafted into the nhl they just did not receive their signing not. they did not sign so they did not receive their signing bonus so they were still amateur players going into the olympics so it's not like these guys like were never going to play professional hockey um in reality it's still a a a pretty insane thing that happened considering these are like 21 22 year old kids going up against 32 year old soviet hockey players who have only been their entire lives have been dictated by the the russian government to be good at this one sport and to win olympic <laughs> games something america doesn't do we no. don't have well, like a state-run gymnast program that just pumps out teenage girls to win 
in this sense, just not in the same yeah. manner that was going on. Um, I also don't think it's the greatest upset of all time because I think the greatest upset of all time has to be the fight between Muhammad Ali and Antonio Inoki. Uh, if you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I think with a team sport, I think with the team sport, it's a little more impressive than a, than an individual thing. Because there's that any given Sunday aspect of individual sure. competition of like but, just something real fluky can happen out of the blue. Um, and with it, and hockey is notably the, the highly organized team sport. I saw a statistical study that showed that like hockey is notably the, the highly organized team sport in which the weirder variants of results happen in, as opposed to like something like baseball or basketball or football, um, where the better statistical team usually wins the game at a, at a higher consistency yeah. than hockey. But yeah, I, yeah. I enjoyed my weekend in, in Lake Placid, oh, uh, watching Lake Placid. Uh, Placid. Did you meet archival Lake... video of uh, Mike Ruzioni score in, in the silver cup game of the Olympics in 1980. I, I know nothing about hockey. I've seen that movie, which is the analogy that you're making. Yeah. I saw it in 2003. So I don't remember much about it. Uh, I should watch it uh, again. Uh, it's probably a good movie, right? It's a good. I mean, I watched it while I was up there because I was like, yeah. I have Direct, to watch Miracle. Directed by, and I, directed I by Gavin O'Connor. Yeah, I was trying to teach my girlfriend about what happened because she, she doesn't know anything about sports. Uh, yeah. It's not. I mean, it's not great, but it's a yeah, good sports it's, movie. It's, yeah. it's probably the same. And it's real best. hockey players. They cast real hockey okay. players. So what you're seeing looks very authentic. Okay. Um, yeah it's like that that thing michael powell said when he was making the red shoes that it's easier to teach a ballerina to act than it is to teach an actor to dance yeah uh, and i think that's you know... how i felt no disrespect to margot robbie uh, a great actress who i like a lot um there's no way you're gonna tell me that the performance she gives in I, Tanya is so good that it justifies how terrible the face replacement is <laughs> in the skating scenes in I, Tanya. You know? It's funny that you bring up I, Tanya because I, um, like, I don't know if it's dyslexia or whatever, but Craig Gillespie and Gavin O'Connor, because of the Irish sounding names, like, they get very confused. Well, hey, you know, you know what we're going to talk about in this podcast, too, I know. Is Craig Gillespie. <laughs> I know. Uh, Listeners, get ready for me to be pissed off at that movie. Um, <laughs> but, but hey, uh, welcome to Above the Title, the podcast about the evolving state of the 21st century movie star and the career of one Colin Farrell. I'm Cole. I'm Connor. I just clocked that it's Cole Connor Colin. Yeah, Cole Connor I just Colin. I just put that together because Can we I'm only do smart... another C person. Boy, like, I think forward. we might be trapped. <laughs> Um, and this week, uh, Connor brought up Miracle because we are talking about a film by the director Gavin O'Connor, who I kind of love. Just personally throwing that out there. Let me just say, I I did it to myself this week. I got like kind of excited to watch this movie. I was off of so excited to watch this movie. What I knew this movie was about, and I really, you know, Miracle, as I've said, is is a pretty thrilling sports film because you're seeing very authentic. Uh, you know what athletics. else is a thrilling sport film? 
Well, are you gonna say warrior or motherfucking warrior? Yeah, yeah. Gavin O'Connor, director of Miracle, uh, which he made before this week's movie, and uh, a little movie called Warrior, which he made after this movie, and is on some days I'm like maybe the best movie ever made, maybe like the best movie of that year. I I would say probably the best combat sport movie ever made. Maybe the best movie about brotherhood ever made certainly so you tell me gavin o'connor before he made fucking warrior (laughs) made a fucking like cops his brother's melodrama and it ends with a fucking it ends with them dude it it, (laughs) the end of this movie is the cop equivalent of like let's step into the octagon and do yes yeah and it's horrible it's so bad that's right this week we're talking about Probably the most forgotten movie in Gavin O'Connor's filmography, depending on how you feel about Jane Got a Gun. And Jane Got a Gun like has at least some notoriety around it. Uh, we are I talking like, about. I feel like Jane Got a Gun is more forgettable than this one. I said for more forgotten, maybe than this one. Yeah, uh, we were talking about Gavin O'Connor's 2008 corrupt cop semi epic. Uh, Pride and Glory, starring uh, Colin Farrell, Edward Norton, John Boyd, Noah Emmerich, Jennifer Ely, John Ortiz, Shea Wiggum, Frank Grio, and Lake Bell. Uh, Connor, what was the sound you made when you realized that like the squad of cops in this movie were fucking Ortiz, Wiggum, and Grio? That feels like <laughs> pitched right at you. <laughs> it, it feels like, well, I, I texted you like seven minutes into this movie and I was like, you're going to watch this movie. And after the opening scene, you're going to be like, this feels tailor made for Connor because it begins. It begins with a thing that I don't know if it exists in reality or not, like an adult contact football league between cops and maybe other either either competing police departments or like the police are playing the the fire department like i I can't really tell what's going on the police are playing the police from another borough that's what i I think it's like the manhattan cops versus the brooklyn cops because they're in don't they reference later that they're in brooklyn in that opening scene i think so yeah yeah it'd be Um, funny if it'd be funny if they were playing like the parks department yeah, I am. And it was just like these, okay. these crazy Before, before we like get into the meat of this movie, I have a question for you, and then I have a thing I want to say, and then we, we, we can get into the meat of this movie. My first question is, to my understanding, this movie is centered around the 31st Precinct. Now, to my understanding, there is no 31st Precinct in Manhattan. Uh, I don't think I it's a number they research. use. I, I looked it up. If it is, it doesn't exist now. Where are they supposed to be? What like area of Manhattan are they? Okay. Because they're, they're so fucking Irish. Their jurisdiction is Washington Heights. You but think they, so? But they all live in, in Queens, from okay. what I can understand. Yeah. Okay. Because it was it was which is a very was, classic New York cop thing sure. where you're stationed in a part of the city that you don't actually live in. But they also spend a lot of time fucking around in the Bronx in this movie. I don't know if they're in the Bronx or if they're just in that uptown part of Manhattan. Like no, they go into the Bronx a lot. A lot of the back half of this movie is set in the Bronx. Uh, he even says it. The the big, like, linchpin turning shooting in the movie takes place in the Bronx. I know that that does, but I don't think as much of the other stuff is I, the Bronx. I don't know. It, I think the, they might have shot it in the Bronx, but I don't I, know if it's I supposed to be I think they shot. The maybe that's it. Yeah. Um, 
my second thing, just to lay this out, uh, Connor, Pride and Glory, more like tired and boring. <laughs> That's our show for this week. Uh, thank you for listening to Above the Title. Uh, Connor, do you want to plug the Instagram? Oh, my God. This yeah, uh, this movie's bad, right? This movie, like, you watched this last night, right? I watched, like, half of it uh, last Friday, maybe? And oh, wow. The, uh, re- the other half of it last yeah. night, just because I was running out of time and... yeah. I didn't have any time to jam it in. Um, I watched it. I watched it earlier today. I think I finished it about three hours ago and I like, didn't like it while I was watching it, but like in like the, the amount of time I've spent percolating on it, I like it less and less and less. I I think this thing is a fucking turd. How did, how did he, how did he make a movie this bad? I I don't don't understand. Because even his well, even his quote unquote bad films, other than this movie that I've seen, are like still competently directed. Like The Accountant is a really weird movie, but it's yeah, still competently it's directed. It's more than competently directed. It kicks yeah, but I think ass. like, but aside from how we feel about it, like the argument yeah. has been made that that's a bad movie. No, it's the an account. insane movie. People are wrong. Yeah. Um, okay, we get it. You like the account, but the argument has been made <laughs> yes. that it's a bad movie. But it, regardless how you feel about like what the story of the movie is, you could tell it's still competent, like a competently made film. And even the action scenes are like very uh, digestible in a way that yeah. that the like this this I wouldn't necessarily classify as an action movie, but the simple like cause and effect choreography is of what is happening within scenes. I can't necessarily like piece together. No, <laughs> I don't really plot... have like an awareness of the space and time within the film and how it's working. So I think there were three big problems with this movie and they're all coming in for the script. So for just some brief context and Connor, I know you all, you know this already, but um this movie's from 2008, obviously, because that's where we are uh, in the thing. Um, this script was in development as early as 2000. Uh, first draft written in 99 um, gets tabled after 9-11 because everyone's so hoorah about the NYPD, but mm-hmm. then spends, you know, you they shot this in 2006. So like, we're talking about like seven years of development here. Right. I think we got three problems. A it's clearly a case of something getting workshopped, I think to the point of oblivion. Yeah. Right. That this script has just been squeezed dry of anything interesting. Uh, B you know, what happens between 1999 and 2008 uh, is a little dude called James Gray shows up and starts like doing this thing at like the highest possible level. Yeah, uh, we can. It it's, cannot be acknowledged that this is just a bad James Gray movie. It's it's impossible not to make the comparison between this and We Own the Night. Yes, which is but like, also the yards, like like yeah, it yeah, all yeah. James Gray's whole thing for the first half of his career was like. But if you're if you're looking at Pride and Glory thematically, Pride and yes. Glory, I might have said Pride and Glory. If you're looking at Pride and Glory <laughs> thematically, and um. I'm just I'm just catching this right now. Is that El Motivar film also called Pride and Glory? No. The one with yes, it is. Oh god, I gotta check this. I think it is. Weird. Weird. Um, weird that I didn't realize that until right now. 
Um, but if you're looking at this pain this, and glory, pain and glory, pain and, pain glory, and glory, pain and glory. Okay. That if you're looking at this cool. Colin Farrell film from 2008, Pride and Glory, yes. and you're looking at it thematically, yes, and you're trying to understand what Gavin O'Connor, who is a child of a product of New York City, is is trying to do in telling this generational story about the New York Police Department. And you look at We on the Night, it's clear that they had as as writer filmmakers, they had very similar intentions going into both of those projects. Clearly. Yeah. The difference is, and like, again, I don't want to rag on Gavin O'Connor, someone I actually do really like, who I think is one of the more interesting, like semi-anonymous studio guys working today. I also, we, we didn't bring it up. James I Greg. also, I also love uh, Mayor of Easttown. It's like one of the few miniseries is I've watched over the last that few years. him? Yeah. He oh, shit. It. Yeah. Oh, dang. I yeah. want to watch that now. Um, Here's the Which is a thing. great cop story. That is a, that is a fantastic yeah, detective sure. story. Sure. I had no yeah. idea that was him. Um, point number three, vis-a-vis what's going on here, why it goes wrong. Uh, O'Connor wrote this movie with Joe Carnahan. I like Joe Carnahan just fine. He wrote your favorite movie of all time, man. Oh, he directed my favorite movie of all time. Oh, did he direct it? What are we talking? What are you talking about? Because I'm uh, talking about the A Team. Oh, I was going to say Bad Boys for Life. Yes, he did write Bad yeah. Boys for Life. A good script, uh, a really good script. Man, that movie's so fucking good. Uh, free those guys from fucking Zaslav Jail. Um, <laughs> like Joe Carnahan, just fine. He's made some movies I like a lot. He's made some real fucking stinkers, right? Like an un, an uneven career, let's say. The wrong person to bring in to write like a moody, serious cop drama, right? Like, I know Joe Carnahan like tricked everyone to thinking that's the guy he was. Like back in the early 2000s, because he made Narc, which I've never seen. But like, you Joe mean Carnahan... like this gritty, like, yeah. pop film writer? Yeah. Yeah. But Joe Carnahan made Smoking Aces and Cop Shop. And did I mention the fucking A Team movie, which is a live he action Looney other... Tunes movie? Like, who's the other guy we talked about? Oh, David Ayer. Yeah. It's like, same deal except Los Angeles. Yes. No, yeah. but David, they're, they're different. But my point is that. Joe Carnahan is like cartoonish. Like it's very violent and it's very like dark and shocking. Yeah. But definitely. Joe Carnahan makes live action R-rated cartoons. He's entirely the wrong person to to <laughs> bring this in. And if this movie has like a serious flaw, it's that every scene is like simmering with this undercurrent of like clockwork orange style ultraviolence that the movie yeah. can't sustain it's not it's not what the movie is interested in. it's not what o'connor's interested in but it's, it's a little too like sincere to be able to uh exactly fully metabolize that kind of that, that kind of extreme depravity that it that it verges on at times i'm not gonna like take seriously a like brothers betraying brothers and trying to like justify their moral codes with each other like weepy seriously if it's also a movie where colin farrell threatens to burn 
a baby with a fucking iron while a dude just screams the n-word at him for three that's minutes. what i'm saying yeah. like that's the joe carnahan of it all there's a place for carnahan i liked cop shop a lot i saw it in the fucking theater right it's, it's also dude it's also difficult to and we're doing it again. We're, we're we're just jumping into it without doing the plot synopsis. Well, I have to read got, you this quote. We got about forty five minutes to go yeah. before the plot synopsis. I I have to read you this quote from uh, Edward Norton. I think uh. it was. Uh, he's talking about. Uh, he says, "I think the thing that's interesting to me about the way they wrote this family is that you've got this whole spectrum of attitudes towards the job. In a way, Jimmy Colin Farrell is obviously proactively going one way. The older brother." played by Noah Emmerich, is in a way committing a sin of more of a mission. He's not doing anything corrupt, but he's sort of accepting that a certain level of corruption is part of the status quo. Ray, who he plays, obviously is on the far end of the spectrum saying, this is intolerable. But Ray also Ray also tells a woman early on in the film, if you lie to me, I'm going to fucking take your kid away from you as yeah. as he leaves. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's difficult to accept him as being the the shining beacon of moral righteousness in this film when he clearly is more like his the way the brother character is being portrayed a, a more yeah. like traumatized version of of that brother character i mean i think at the crux of this movie is what norton is talking about right is this like weird triangle of these three men in this like de facto yeah. family because one of them I think if you only strip, two of them are blood brothers right i think if you strip everything away that's what the movie wants to be yes about. but yeah. the problem with the movie is it never nails those relationships from the start and so everything else is kind of just incoherent do you get what i'm saying i do he goes on to say about the father figure who's played by john voigt in this film, I actually think the dad is in this weird place all his own, which is I think the dad has, in fact, become cyborg within the institution. He doesn't see the institution as something that is responsible to a higher line. He sees the institution as its own purpose and has his ultimate commitment towards that purpose. Um, that to me is like the most interesting thing that has been said about this film. And that is sure. almost that was... not present in the film yeah. in any way whatsoever. I mean, I think. I think the relationship with the three, three brothers isn't there, but I also think, you know, I don't want to spend this whole episode saying like, but here's why Warrior is good. <laughs> but, you know, I know, I know people have issues with the Nolte performance in Warrior. Um, I still I, think it's great. I think I it's... Do. I think it's great, but I'm sympathetic to the people who are like turned off by how much of a fucking ham sandwich it is. I can but see that, yeah. Divorce yourself from the performance, right? As in, 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 in like a screenwriting sense and a directing sense, the specter that man casts over his two sons, even the one who he never interacts with that entire movie, is like a shadow beating down on them in every single fucking scene of that movie right it's yeah it's there it's as core as the relationship between hardy and edgerton is and you could write void out of this movie tomorrow right and it 
doesn't impact the film, which is a problem, A, on the thematic level, but B, on a narrative level that, like, this movie's supposed to be about, like, a powerful police family, but you never get the sense that they're a powerful police family because this guy who should be fucking Brando in The Fucking Godfather is such, like, an afterthought in the script Mm -hmm. that he's never the fucking kingpin he needs to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very, uh... What the, fuck? Point. what the <laughs> fuck is going on with this movie, man? I don't know, because it's this it's just so bad. <laughs> is it gets is so Frank... as I as I texted you, it gets so fucking stupid so fucking fast as you start really like ramping up into the meat of the thing. I I think it's a bit more of a gradual issue, and I think it's oriented around around this sense that you're you you're from the beginning you're kind of unmoored um and then uh, here's a, a a question i have for you connor mm. who's the lead of this movie well it's supposed to be edward norton yes, i think but yeah who's but the lead of this movie it's uh franny who's played by noah emmerich i would say is the lead of the film yes but also for a healthy stretch there, isn't it also John Ortiz? And... John Ortiz gets more screen time and narrative momentum than Norton does for like the first. I kind of, of think I kind of think like uh and we're talking about like the upper echelons of competency if you're gonna compare this to what it could have been. Yeah, I think like the really, really good version of this story, Ortiz is one of like the two sure. main protagonists yes. of the film. Yeah, I mean, but I in think... this film that we watched, he's he is just a plot device to help yes. things move from A to B. I mean, I think, and we should get into the plot synopsis now because we're we're getting into it. But yeah. I think you know, vis a vis the story the movie wants to tell, Norton and then to a lesser degree, Farrell are the well. Norton's the protagonist, but Farrell's like the narrative driving antagonist, right? But yeah. in practice, no, I do think you're right. I think Noah Emmerich is the protagonist of this movie, but I don't think that's something the movie is doing intentionally. No. I think that's just what we grasp onto because Norton and Farrell are such non-entities in this movie. Farrell, I Noah think... Noah Emmerich is, is, is like... A great actor, it, to be clear. Yeah. No, Love that's that's what I was gonna say. I was like, it, he's he's like a fascination all all its own because of his relationship to his brother, and kind of there's like a negative weight that's carried along his career of the assumption of people who had who don't seem to watch his skill that closely, suggesting that like he gets work because of his brother's stature I within the don't... film industry. Do you think he's Roland's brother? No, no, no. His okay. brother. Okay. His brother. His was, brother is an executive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah his yeah, yeah, brother yeah. was, I think, the chairman of Warner Brothers. Uh, yes. Like throughout the. He early is part the of chairman. The no, no, he was the chairman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a um, fucking body of credits. Yes. Yeah. Uh. Uh. But it's like, I would gesture for anybody to to watch him in any of the films he's been in, and and tell me that he's not giving one of the better. Uh, I, I'm actually film. I, I I don't think that's a fair thing to label Noah Emmerich with, and I'm not saying that you're saying that, but 
No, I'm trying to say the opposite. Yeah, I know you're trying yeah. to say the opposite, but just looking at these two guys' filmographies, like obviously Noah Emmerich is not like a huge star, right? But Noah Emmerich is established in the lane that Noah Emmerich is in. Yeah. Years before his brother becomes an executive at Warner Brothers. Because his brother's first, his brother, I, I just pulled this guy's moment. His brother used to be a music supervisor. So he has a shit ton of credits. But his brother doesn't actually start producing until Rush Hour 2. So that's, you know. And by that point, we're like talking uh, a half decade after the Truman Show. Yeah, Truman Show, Copland, Beautiful Girls. He's already linked up, which I did not clock the fucking Noah Emmerich, Gavin O'Connor relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's fucking real because, like, this is the only real, like, juicy role he's given him. But Gavin O'Connor's in Tumbleweeds, Miracle, This, Warrior, Jane Got a Gun. The he only plays, two. <laughs> he plays such an important part in Miracle, too, because he's the I only know. normal person in the movie. So while the while um, uh, Kurt Russell is literally, like, losing his mind, pushing these guys to the brink of what their bodies are physical, physically capable of doing, Noah Emmerich is just, like, off on the side being like, this is insane, right? And you kind of need that <laughs> character because part of the problem with sports movies is that nothing looks that impressive because it's the way movies are shot. Yes. It, it doesn't look it if you watch somebody dunk a basketball in a movie it's not it's not jolting in the way it is to see somebody dunk a basketball on tv or yeah. not even um, remotely close to watching it happen in person so you in sports movies you kind of need that character in the film to 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 relay to the audience how crazy it is what they're watching happen and that's the role that he has in miracle uh I like I, I am choosing to believe that he was already in Jane Got a Gun. Um and Gavin O'Connor did not put him after he took over production of that movie. That was such a huge story when it came out, and it resulted in like the movie that exists less than any movie has ever existed. <laughs> I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it's it's fairly true. It's pretty true. Um no, yeah, I got it here. He he cast Noah Emmerich when he came on. Uh, Noah Emmerich probably could have been in uh, The Way Back, though. Right? Yeah. I think it'd be difficult, though, maybe because of the setting of that film, to find a place to like place him. Okay. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, not a movie I remember super well, but just going to throw this out here. Can he not like play the priest in the way back? You don't remember the priest. No, but I think the thing about the priest is like the priest seems like a Southern California priest and Noah Emmerich would seem like the like the gruff blue collar Irish priest. Sure. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I wish that movie was better, man. So maybe it doesn't fit that. Well, it's like part of the reason part of the thing of the way back is like the Affleck character is kind of thinking he can get away with this shit because there's nobody like that standing over him when he takes the job. Sure. So I think if you have Emmerich in that role, it makes Baffle character seem more like an idiot or like more okay. antagonistic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't seen that movie since it came out. I'm kind of yeah. freeballing here. Yeah, um, I am too. I'm totally yeah. freeballing here. Uh, good. good uh, okay. Movie way better than this movie. Uh, 
Connor, tell the nice people what happens in this movie. God. Um, Have fun. Be concise. This movie begins, as we said, with a professional, not professional, with an amateur adult men's contact football game between what we think is competing police departments. And Colin Farrell is like the starting middle linebacker and defensive captain of the Manhattan police department football team, maybe. We're not really sure. Um, He is married to the sister of noah emmerich's character franny right yep that's what they call him yeah and uh ray who's played by edward norton and they are both the sons of john voight who i i I don't remember what his character's name is who is like an institutional figure within the police department and so this is a police family um every member of the family is connected with the police some way uh as the game is coming to an end, they get a call that officers have been shot um, during a sting operation in Washington Heights, which is where their precinct uh, majorly acts out of. All of these men were under the the direction of Farrell's character. Um, and uh, Ray is asked by his father to come in and lead the investigation into what happened to, to these men. Can I just briefly interrupt you? Just because I think it's important. Noah Emmerich like runs the precincts. Yeah, he's Farrell like, runs a division. Farrell has like a team, and then is he's a, a sergeant. He's a sergeant. He, Farrell is a sergeant, and Emmerich is a deputy inspector. Yes, but and and Norton is just a detective. And John <laughs> Norton Voight is a detective is in a chief. different. Norton is a detective in a different unit, right? Like yes, he's yeah. semi estranged professionally. So yeah. he's if if Emmerich and and Farrell are part of the same like structured Norton is somewhat of an outsider. Norton That's is being important. introduced to yes. this situation as a wild card. Who's yes. Being, who's being asked to come in to look at it with a clean set of eyes yes. um, without the baggage that yes. the other people in the department have. That's um, an important context. But yeah. Four Ray also, shot Ray also has cuts. a very, Ray also has a very visible scar on his cheek, um, yes. alluding to some kind of bad event that had happened in years past, um, which is most likely the reason he is estranged from his brother and his brother-in-law and his father in working out of a different unit. Um, God, Cole, what happens in this movie? Uh, you want Ray me to take it? this investigation, uh, but uh, Farrell's character, whose name is Jimmy, Jimmy Egan. Um, it's very quickly revealed that Egan leads his unit like an organized uh like yeah like the the mafia um they are dealing drugs on their own they are taking protection money on their own they are taking money to kill rival drug dealers from drug dealers (laughs) and that is essentially what happened in this situation they were going to assassinate a drug dealer uh on the contract of a rival drug dealer yet a member of their crew um, played by John Ortiz, who goes by the name of Sandy, who grew up in the same neighborhood as the guy they're going to set. This is so convoluted. It's who grew so up in convoluted. the same neighborhood as the guy who they were going to assassinate, tipped him off, not knowing that all of his co-workers were going to get killed in this raid, which is like, how do you not know, man? Yeah. Like, You got to know that they're going to get killed. Well, yeah. whatever. Um, they're all trying to track down the guy who was supposed to get assassinated during this thing, whose name is Tazo. Yes, is that right? Tazo. Yeah. Yes. Who's like a Puerto Rican drug dealer. I think he's Dominican. A Dominican drug dealer. It's yeah. not really said. This movie is maybe racist against Hispanic people. I, I haven't like, I haven't thought about it that much, but 
it's rubbing me the wrong way as I'm like leaning in that direction um, of my sentiment towards it. Uh, Ray using good police work finds Tezo in like a project building in the Bronx. And when he arrives on the scene, Farrell's unit is already there in the process of killing him. Uh, Ray tries to stop them from killing him. And Farrell takes Ray's gun and shoots Tezo three times with Ray's gun, implicating Ray in the murder that's taking place. Um, they start getting investigated by internal uh, affairs, but that's not what it's called. It's called ISB here. I don't know what that stands for. Do you know what it stands for? No. Internal something bureau, I'm, I'm assuming. On the stand, Ray choose to take, chooses to take the moral path, and he testifies that he did not shoot the gun that killed Tezo, um, which implicates Egan in the crime. Yes. Yet when Egan takes the stand, he claims that Ray shot Tezo in cold blood. Specifically, he he blood. inverts the scenario that he's yeah. like, I showed up and found Ray torturing this guy. Yeah. Um, which deflects uh, the suspicion towards him onto Ray. Uh, meanwhile, Egan's unit, which is made up of Frank Grillo and Shea Wiggum, um, are just kind of crazy maniacs who will beat up and, and kill anybody they, they want to assert their power over in they, Washington Heights. Um, you, didn't, you didn't mention this, but Ortiz ends up going to the press. Oh, yes. about this corruption so Farrell's unit gets suspended Ortiz goes to the press about the the corruption not the murder of Tezo but the, but corruption, the corruption that they in were general. involved in and he takes his life by his own hand in the backseat of the car of the journalist who he's talking to which is which insane which I, I just I also don't understand how this works logistically in the in the world of film but we could get into that later um how do we get to the end? I'm trying to figure oh, well, out well, in my here's, head here's how we thing. get to the end. Here's the I'll, I'll bring it home. Yeah. Here's the thing that rocks. Literally, none of this shit matters. No. Because what happens is Norton decides he's going to have the grand confrontation with Farrell. And they like go to a bar and they get into like a big burly fist fight for the But before that even feelings. happens, before that but even then happens. As they're leaving, yeah. it doesn't matter because they run into a riot. Because Frank Grio broke because he's uh, he he doesn't have his drug house anymore or his cop money tries to rob a convenience store and ends and ends up getting shot and Wiggum ends up taking hostages and a riot breaks out <laughs> so Norton and Farrell just stumble into this riot and Farrell gets beat to death as revenge for Tezo's murder like. That's fucking it. All the like, yeah, he kind of gets beat to death in martyrdom. Yeah, then visually, he lets it happen, he which decides, I don't understand. <laughs> he decides he needs to suffer for this. So, like, all and there's this a majestic shit, shot this... of the light of the subway, the above yeah. ground subway riding by that makes it seem like he's ascending to, yeah. towards heaven after getting beat to death by the riot. all this fucking all this fucking interscene like inner rivalry and like who knew about the corruption and how high does the structure go and internal affairs and like family loyalties, like brushing up against our moral code. None of this fucking shit ends up mattering at all. Cause it just has a weird, do the right thing. Knockoff ending where like they just not, and call except it like a day. the opposite, except yeah. it's like the oh, it's opposite not, yeah. of do the right thing. It's yeah. This movie's dumb. Okay. If in Do the Right Thing, the police kill an unarmed yes. man, which starts a riot. This movie is literally the opposite, where a riot 
causes like non-armed people to kill a police officer <laughs> cold blood like and like the quiet implication is that like they've just been waiting there for their chance to get a hand on him and this yeah. like insane hostage situation with Shea Wiggum freaking out and shooting people in a convenience store is just it's all very tidy um it also doesn't make sense that Colin Farrell would be drinking in a bar in that neighborhood. Like, no. this is part of the reason I'm like, where the fuck is this movie? What neighborhood is this movie set in? Because, like, you can say they live in Queens, but then why is Farrell there? That's a great point. Because, Number... like, to push it home, if they clearly live in houses. Yes. They clearly live in houses with yes. backyards, which do not it, exist in Washington Heights. That photography does yeah. look like Queens. Like, like, like that sort of architecture. It looks like they have to live in Queens. And it, so if they work in Washington Heights, but they all live in Queens or they live in other more suburban boroughs throughout the city or even yeah. possibly New Jersey, although I'm still not really sure how the rules with that work, because I've heard a lot of stuff about Copland and I'm just not really sure how that actually plays out. Um, so we'll forget about New Jersey for a minute. Uh, Copland's set in upstate, though. Is it set in upstate? Yeah. But it's shot in Bayonne. Maybe where okay. Let me double I check. I think it's I set in Jersey. I think Copland is set in Jersey. You're right. It is set in Jersey. Yeah. Um, if there's something implicit about this movie of like these men feel like they can act with such impunity because yes. they are enforcing the law in neighborhoods that they do not reside in, that they are kind of above the people, like they view themselves as being above the people that they are put in charge to protect and serve. Why on earth would they drink in the neighborhood that they are serving in and not just go home and drink in the neighborhood Thank that you. they live in? So it doesn't Thank make you. any sense. Yeah, to bring your point Say home. what you will about Copland, but it gets the fucking like political logistics of that right. Problem number one with this movie. I think the fucking Alpha and the Omega with what, what's gone wrong with this movie, truly. This movie is what, two hours and 15 minutes long? Shocking. I mean, long. my brain wants yeah. to say this movie is nine and a half hours long. Because it's the most boring movie I've ever seen. I want, I like my for me. I want to say it's three hours long the way it feels. Yeah, but I also want to say it's like eighty-two minutes long in the terms of like what it, of importance actually happens throughout the film. But it's two hours and fifteen minutes. Yeah, I think Colin Farrell has about ten minutes of screen time in this movie. Yeah, ten yeah. to fifteen, and like normally I'm not fucking screen time cop, right? Like. People, small roles can have big impacts, but the centrality of Jimmy to this narrative that is not enough, like, he is simply not in this movie enough for this movie to work. And I'm not saying I necessarily want more Colin, but, you know, at the crux of this story is this fucking, like, organized crime ring run by this guy why isn't this guy more of a central figure in the movie? Do you get what I'm why, saying? Why is his he's the the end of the movie wants you to believe that he is also conflicted about his place in all this? And why does the movie not portray that conf, that internal conflict that he because it doesn't anyway? have time to because he's not yeah. fucking in the movie. It doesn't you know? have time to because it's t- too busy watching Edward Norton like stomp heroin into the ground as he's like interrogating just a random sure, guy on the but street. Like, yeah. Colin is such an absence and like look the the timeline of when they shot this movie is like kind of coincides with when he's in rehab right 
yeah, don't know if you put that like, together. It sounds like they shot it the second he got out of rehab. Yeah. Almost. So yeah. maybe he wasn't as available as they wanted him to be. But if that's the case, I am sorry. Recast. I know he's the antagonist of the movie, but this movie is calling for, I'm going to say it, a De Niro in Heat level antagonist, right? Like, you need to be with this man to understand not even just his own moral qualms, but the literal, like, narrative machinations of what he's doing. The entire plot hinges on knowing more about this man than the movie is willing Uh to give us. I've been kind of struggling with this a lot. I mean, for obvious reasons of the whole point of us doing this podcast where I can't, I can't necessarily tell if his casting in this role is, is actually genius. And in a better film, it's like an Academy award worthy role for him. Or if he's like deeply, deeply, deeply miscast and they like went completely down the wrong route. Oh Yeah. I think he's well cast, but I think he's really bad at this movie. I think there's something about it where he's like, he's clearly the guy who's like the best looking guy in the police yeah. academy when they're coming up. He gets married to the chief's daughter, but he's a mook, right? Yeah, but he's he's, he's like a street a, thug. He's a good football player, but not good enough to be like you know a, a division one or a professional football player. He's DiCaprio um, the Departed. Yeah, right? but it's he's even never more gonna, than that because he doesn't no, have the pedigree. What I'm trying to say is he's like the police homecoming king is 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 who that there's like an aspect of that to him. Like most most popular guy, like the the platonic ideal of an Irish cop working up the ranks. But has this evil laying inside him where he's capable of threatening these things and doing these things. There's also part of me that wants to see this role as like a, a guy who with out effort would be a disgusting of like a physically disgusting human being who's like i think of sean penn in some roles where yeah you look at him and it's like it's not sean penn the act the 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 individual in real life it's the the characters that he plays i don't necessarily think mystic river is a great performance but there is something about that where he's playing like a gross disgusting human being who has put on enough effort to look like a presentable man in the world and i kind of wish that there is like maybe that aspect to this character here. yeah i i see this performance and i'm like i think colin's bad in this movie i don't necessarily think it's his fault but there's just there's so little to work with yeah with this character that he's just being really big and really loud and making a lot of like intense choices and none of it ever feels like just thinking back to just how fucking like locked in everything he does in in Bruges and how much everything feels like this cohesive, real breathing human being. This is just noise. This is just acting for acting's sake. And it's because he doesn't have, it's not the kind of bad performance he normally gives, but you're kind of, you're seeing him cast out there without a net and having to like really make up for screenplay deficiencies and he can't do it. It's funny how much in flip-flop territory we are at the yeah. point where he's he's an Alexander where he's he's clearly trying to overcompensate for what's missing there either on the page or yes. in the day while they're filming. And then he's in the tree of life where he's just told to do stuff the, and he just the follows new world. direction. Or yeah, sorry, the new world. And then he's in 
ask the dust where he's clearly trying to overcompensate for mm. stuff that's kind of like missing there on the page or missing there on the day. And then he's in Miami Vice where he's just being told yeah. what to do and he's just giving it. And then he's in Cassandra's Dream where he's trying to overcompensate. And then he's in yeah. Bruce where he's just doing what he's I, doing. I don't know if I, I don't know if I buy that a hundred percent, but clearly, like I know I've spoken a lot about his his greatest deficiency as an actor is how easily he can get lost if if the movie isn't there around him um i think like you've clearly also listened to a lot of interviews yes as well yes and i think something that i can't stop thinking about after we tried to compare him with christian bale is how he's always talking about he's always trying to understand for somebody who's never directed a film or i don't think he's ever even written a film that he's been a part of although there's there's something coming out. I think there's a series coming out on Apple. Soon. Did he write Sugar? I th- I don't know if he wrote it, but he he played a role in the actual like creation okay. of it. But in these interviews that he gives, he he's clearly yearning for and trying to understand how these projects work apart from him at his role as an actor in the thing. Yes. And I think when I think when he's part of a project that's that's it's not as art it's not as clear to him what they are, what the filmmaker is trying to do. And from what it looks to us, especially if you look at something like Alexander, it's not so clear to the filmmaker either what they're trying to do. Um, He is trying to inflect it with his own opinion of what the project should be. And I commend him for doing that, but I don't, we have yet to see a we have yet to see a situation where he's been given like a lackluster working situation and has been able to overcome it through his own yes, I don't, um, inflection of that. He has never saved a movie. And just thinking of the stuff that we haven't covered yet, barring my maybe contentious opinion about Yargos, I don't know that he's ever gonna save a movie which is interesting but what i think is interesting yeah. is that like when i think about the real stuff but also he's not the main character of the like he can't save this movie. well okay no but that's yeah. table that for a second i want to touch on something first when i think about the performances of his that i don't think are good that we've covered i'm thinking of outlaws i'm thinking of swat i'm thinking of alexander um those are all performances where like you said, there's like, there's not really anything for him to work with. And I feel like he disappears into the movie, right? Like he kind of just almost shuts down as a performer and isn't really giving you what the charisma that you know he has. Whereas, I mean, I've already stated that I disagree with you about Alexander. I know, but when I see Alexander, I think mm. something clicked in him as an actor where he kind of felt more comfortable trying to but do I, more even if it doesn't work i think this one's interesting because he's actually almost trying too hard yeah here he's given a real ham sandwich performance and like i don't think they're necessarily equitable but i said that was my problem with him and cassandra's dream because woody allen famously doesn't direct people and he's acting more than everyone else in that movie Post rehab is Colin trying harder. Do you get oh, what definitely. I'm saying? A hundred percent. But to his from what we've seen, from yeah. what we I don't know if he's trying harder. I think if if 
this is a lot of projection that I'm putting onto him from interviews that I've heard of him speak and stuff that I've read. I think he's probably like grateful for the opportunity to keep working and he doesn't want to waste the, the chances that he's given out of it post rehab. So but in he, a sense, like he yeah. is working harder, but I think he's also just working differently than he did before he went to rehab. If that makes sense. You say he's not the protagonist of this movie. No, you did just say that. Well, I but, don't. Yeah. I'm saying I yeah, don't think yes. he is. Yeah. But here's, I thought of two movies primarily while I was watching this and I've mentioned them both already, but I'm going to fucking mention them again. <laughs> the two movies I kept thinking of while I was watching this movie are warrior and heat. Now, what do Warrior Heat not and, We Own the Night? I thought not We Own the Night. No, no, because We Own the Night is not this thing. What do Warrior Heat and this movie have in common? They are all movies about these two men who are oh, and the departed. I thought about the departed too when you brought up the departed. Yeah. All movies about two men who are racing towards this violent confrontation that we know is coming, who aren't sharing the screen. Right? Do you get what I'm saying? I don't think the crux of the issue here is that we don't get to see Norton and Farrell spending a whole lot of time together. Yeah. Which is the obvious screenwritery fix that you want to juice up that thing. Heat, Warrior, um, The Departed are all these movies where these two, the two leads, and that's the thing in all those movies, they're both leads. You spend a lot of time with them alone. Everyone talks about how they're eventually going to have to come to heads with each other, even if it's not in that literal sense. Then they get one big scene together and then shit fucking hits the fan, right? Also with those movies that you're mentioning, yeah, that's not the case with this one. Is like those two characters, they don't start necessarily in the same place, but they start with the same emotional aspirations. Yeah, And you see them like, rocket off on these paths yes. toward where they think they're heading and you, and what makes it so interesting is you're watching the different ways that they live their lives like the different ways they're in most most of these cases they're trying to achieve the same thing if not if not like a material thing a thing for themselves like within them and that's not present yeah. here in, in any way yeah but the other thing that makes this movie's work is that De Niro Pacino DiCaprio Damon Edgerton Hardy they get equal fucking screen time, right? Yeah. You're they they are co leads of those movies, even though each is the antagonist to the other in the narrative. They are both protagonists, and therefore you can. It doesn't matter that you only get the one scene with them because you know who they are mm-hmm. as these characters, and that's the payoff. Whereas this movie, Colin is so fucking not in this movie that you're never going to buy this head-to-head he comes to with Norton at the end. And even more so, you don't buy fucking anything. Like, the moment I completely shut off this movie... Well, there's so much that you just don't know. Like, I don't... At the end of the movie, I don't know if Jimmy actually likes Ray or not. I have no idea if he he genuinely... Does he like like, Does he genuinely feel like he's a part of this family? Or does he, like, loathe these people and... You know, does does he is he using his marriage as like a like he's an clearly the most interesting like, character yeah. in the movie. Oh, d- by far, uh, yeah. I just the, don't like clearly though he's not clearly though in O'Connor's version of this film he's not the protagonist of it. Which yes. is it, which I'm not saying that he shouldn't be. I'm just saying he's yes. Not oh yeah, no. But the moment I fully shut off on this movie and like stop trying to give it the benefit of the doubt is 
at about the halfway point when I, I've alluded to this earlier, Farrell's trying to track down this drug kingpin he tried to kill. He like goes into a house and is like starting to like calmly interrogate this drug dealer and he picks up the guy's baby and then he slams the baby down on a table and is like, I'm going to burn this baby's face with uh with a hot iron with a hot iron yeah again Farrell has probably had five minutes of screen time at this point most of it is just him being like a charming family man the one time like two of those minutes are him really out of breath during a football game yeah football super out of breath (laughs) charming family man the one time we see him do crime stuff he's very like tactical and thinking things through and like calm and collected and then all of a sudden he's this raving psycho even if it's an act which it seems to be like you're halfway through this movie you don't know who this guy is no and you're the movie is and when you're that unmoored you're not gonna bother to try to figure him out over the rest of the thing he's not an enigma he's just fucking underwritten he's supposed to in a way i feel like again this this whole podcast is going to be projection because we, we yes. we're not given enough of the film to to make out what we think it's actually about. But I feel like in a way, he's kind of supposed to represent it's it's like it's an issue that the father figure is also part of this film, because I feel like in a way the Egan character is supposed to represent like the rot of authoritarianism that like inevitably will invade these righteous families who spend you know member after member joins the police department for seemingly good reason they want they want to protect and they want to serve and and they appreciate the meritocracy or the so-called meritocracy and um i think he's in it, it somewhat he's supposed to almost be like a tornado like a tasmanian devil of aspiration that just like gets out of hand within this family but you don't have enough to actually like place what his relationship to these two brothers. You simply don't. Yeah. You don't even know. You don't even know what the relationship between the brothers and their sister is like. Yeah. Yeah. Like functionally the, the degree to which it doesn't actually matter that he's their brother-in-law and the, in the grand scheme of things made me constantly be like, just have him be the third brother guys. Like, you clearly don't well, care. Exactly, like, exactly. Like, <laughs> we haven't even mentioned at all. Like, Jennifer Ely gives like a very like touching performance of of. Uh, she plays Franny's wife who's dying of cancer throughout this film, and I, I think I think she does have a good moment where she essentially like reinvigorates his moral backbone near the end of the film. Um, sure. But if we're talking about actual economies of storytelling and like what you have to give screen time to to make these things work it's mind-boggling that so much time is spent with franny and his dying wife when it should be spent on this relationship between these three men and and (laughs) why and what that relationship represents both on an interpersonal and on a macro level if this is supposed to be an epic about law enforcement in new york city and like treating the New York police department as the epitome of American law and order. Why are we spending all this time looking at things that yes, could be touching, but don't really have a place in the story that we're trying to tell. But again, that, that stuff is weirdly what Gavin O'Connor is normally good at. 
yeah. is like contrasting the genre movie trappings with this like quiet domesticity. Uh but usually I his get... genre his genre movies are typically Sports. very simple. Yes. They're typically very simple about a man who didn't have the opportunity to win gold. So he's willing to sacrifice everything in his personal life to coach a team. Yeah, you to know gold. It's about it's two brothers. Good. It's always fucking good. It's about two brothers who weren't there for each other when they were younger. It's just that best giving everything they have for the opportunity made. to support the people that they they feel deserve their work as as much as they can. Uh, How often do you watch the ending of Warrior? Oh god, I because I watch it like I, once a week. I don't think I can watch it often because it's like it's it's too hard for me to watch because I, I will, like I will start crying insane. every single time when he starts yelling "tap out" at Tom and he, Hardy. And he says yeah. it's okay, and yeah. then about today by the National kicks in. Ooh, mm. with sports movies, it's always so hard to nail when you care about both competitors. It's yeah. always so hard to nail an ending which one character wins and the other one loses, and you're supposed to feel like it's the fitting ending. Yeah. Because inevitably, you'll always wonder why the other character lost and didn't yeah. win. And yet, Warrior, because it's because everything that happens in Warrior's narrative about their competition is an expression of their relationship as brothers, is why it works so great. And it's why even when <laughs> loses, you're like, Spoilers. But still, yeah, sorry. <laughs> you still understand that in a way he like he gained that thing that he never had when <laughs> left in their childhood. Uh, yeah. You know what Magical. other movie Magical. manages to nail that ending too? Where you're Which one? you're you're that that idea that like you're invested in both parties winning and then you're not left upset by the ending. Uh bring it on. <laughs> Which is a sports movie? Is a sports movie? You know it's a sports yeah. movie. Is but it's not the same. I'm trying to think of. You don't remember? They're not like, they're not like head to head. The same. They are head to head, but not in the same way. It's just that it's you like, know, you know the are ultimately the better team. Yeah, and that's why you're not upset that the lose at the end because. It's the Rocky thing. They did go the distance. They stopped cheating and they went the distance and you're happy for both teams because it's the right outcome. I don't think I, like I, I understand the analogy, but it's like to me, it's like Warrior is the most perfect. Well, Warrior is the it. fucking best yeah. movie ever. But made. There's, there's also there's also a thing with Warrior where it's like Edgerton's fighting out of his love for his family and Hardy's just angry. He's trying to. To, to to make up for the sins of the American military. Yeah. By kicking his brother's ass. Oh, what a picture. If only we could be talking about that right now. What a fucking it's just, But I, yeah, like I'm saying, like I'm in not O'Connor's even other is the best movie. In O'Connor's other other projects, the the, the domesticities like I mean, the story outside of the domesticity mm -hmm. is usually fairly simple. And yeah. in this one, it's so complicated. Yeah. So I domesticity don't... has nowhere to breathe because it doesn't really belong. Yes. Because he needs to. He does. <laughs> we just talked about. We always talk about Michael Mann. We just talked about Michael Mann. It's like Michael Mann is hyper fixated about the way these these micro nego negotiations work in in any kind of power struggle. And O'Connor seems so disinterested in figuring that out. 
in this vast story about law enforcement. I don't even know if it's disinterest. It's just you're just off the beat from the beginning and there's no grounding. Told you. Uh, Can I hit you with major glaring problem number two in this film? (laughs) Sure. I don't think this is contentious. A few weeks ago in this very podcast, uh, I inaugurated a new segment. Uh, oh, which is quickly, which has quickly become the most beloved segment in the history of this podcast. <laughs> now, sure. Connor, I don't know if you want to do an Edward Norton Mount Rushmore. Um, I could do it. I'm here. If that's what you're asking. Well, I'm just gonna say this. I'm here to do the Edward Norton Grand Canyon. I would say which to remind listeners yeah. is if the Mount Rushmore is the four best performances, the Grand Canyon is the one worst performance. And Edward Norton's Grand Canyon is the 2008 Gavin O'Connor film Pride and Glory. I need to look at his filmography. A fucking disaster. Um clearly I haven't I haven't had as uh, much of an opportunity to do the research that I like to do when we're heading into these episodes. The movie so. doesn't deserve it. There are there are major mind spot uh, major blind spots. I I worked a full day today, people. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm really tripping over my words here. There are major blind spots for me in Norton's filmography. Not necessarily like the acclaimed stuff, but like I haven't seen Motherless Brooklyn. I'm sorry. Neither that. has anyone in the United <laughs> States of America. You know what's you know what's funny about this performance? So what about this one specifically? This one specifically. Norton is Edward Norton. Edward Norton, his head is so round in this movie. I don't <laughs> understand. Is... He doesn't look like that. I understand that he's got like interesting facial hair and he's like playing into this character. I don't know if it's because of the prosthetic for the scar that he's wearing, but he just does not look the way if you set you remove all of the embellishment from his aesthetic of this film. He does not look the way that I imagine Edward Norton looking at all. The shape of his face does not look the same to me. This is true. (laughs) So Edward Norton, not to tell tales out of school. And to his credit, uh, I feel like you don't hear stories like this anymore. But Edward Norton has a bit of a relationship to being difficult to work with. Right? Yeah, but I think his relationship to being difficult to work with is so different than every other actor who has a reputation of being difficult to work with. His reputation for being difficult to work with is specifically that he cares a great deal about the movies that he's making and wants to be like very controlling over the movies that he's making and probably should have started directing earlier and has taken or tried to take edits away from directors in the past and has openly feuded with his directors and has openly feuded with studios and is this like crazy method perfectionist. He seems to demands like an equal level of 
work ethic from a lot of his co-stars, right? He seems to expect a 51 to 49% relationship with his directors, a 51 leaning towards him, not leaning towards the director, unless he's working with Wes Anderson. Well, this is what I'm saying is, but you actually don't hear these stories anymore. So the two, the two really notorious ones are American history X, which Tony K straight up tried to get his name taken off of. He tried to Alan Smithy that movie because Norton took the edit away from him. And then later, 2008, uh, The Incredible Hulk, uh, which Norton gets into a huge fight with Marvel over, tries to get a screenplay credit on this movie, and there's a reason they don't bring him back to play the Hulk in the Avengers movies because they just didn't want to work with him again. But... Even if it's not that case, you kind of hear these stories that like, oh, even for other actors to work with, he like expects a lot of like professionalism and preparation from you. And specifically on the set of this movie, Nick Nolte was supposed to play the John Boyd role. And Nick Nolte dropped out after like a week of shooting. And I think the story was that he injured himself or whatever, but he's gone on the record and said he just didn't like working with Norton. He just didn't want to fucking do it. The trade-off for Norton being like that difficult to work with is that that dude's like a fucking incredible actor. Yeah. Right? Like, it's great on screen. If this is the case where he's so fucking intense (laughs) that he drives Nick Nolte, of all people, to quit the (laughs) movie. Of all people. Why is he so fucking bored on screen in every shot? Why is he sleepwalking his way through this entire performance? I he's hor- this guy it's I mean, atrocious you're alluding to your summation that this is the grand canyon of his career he's, he's, an, he's atrocious i have not seen a movie where he is worse than, <sighs> than in this. oh actually i just remembered this is not the grand canyon i apologize the the grand canyon is sausage party that doesn't count yes it does that doesn't count he's That's doing jew voice he's doing jew voice though he is doing jew voice <laughs> I think it has to be that one. No, you're you're right. It, that that's probably that might be that might be worse. Uh, he's really fucking. He's just like it's not. I just even, wasn't counting it because it's an animated yeah. movie, and it's like does that well, really count? Yeah. Actually, that would be two. The, the the first two Grand Canyons are both animated movies. What who? Because Ewan in Beauty and the Beast. That's a voice performance. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. they do count. Um, yeah. he's terrible in this, and not even a way that's interesting to talk about. No, it's just that's boring. the problem. He looks it's just weird. bad, and it's not dumb. like like I said. He looks weird. He doesn't. I don't know if it's because of the prosthetic, but he doesn't really look like a real human being in this movie. I don't. I, I don't he really know. Kind what's going of on. looks like he does in American History X weirdly. No, it, like because in American History X, he's like so weirdly jacked, and you see. His, I'm like, talking about the face. I'm just out. talking the face. I'm just talking the face. No, because he's like chiseled, and in this movie he just looks round. Just face, just everything he's about got him a round face. In yeah. uh, History X too, uh, he's just so bored, and this guy needs to be like the beating heart of this movie, right? Yeah, I mean, Wahlberg in We on the Night is like incredible performance. Such a, such a like a bleeding firecracker of duty to what he feels like is expected of him. And Norton is like kind of supposed to fill the same role in this film. Not yes. exactly the same, but 
to watch this knowing that Wahlberg gives that performance, who is clearly not as good of an actor as Norton is. No. And to just wonder, like, why didn't you do any of that? (laughs) Why weren't you even necessarily trying to do any of that? Like, I I, I don't know. We could have done a Mark Wahlberg podcast, dude, and we would be talking about We Own the Night today. I know. She would be so good. We would have talked about The Departed, like, last week. We would talk about We Own the Night. We had talked about the Italian job, which Norton's in. We would have talked about. Wouldn't have talked about Boogie Nights, though. No. It's a rough miss. Actually, uh, if I just counted, uh, if we were doing Mark Wahlberg, this would be our Ted episode. Man's made less movies wow. than you think he has. Really? Yeah, he doesn't work that often. Too busy making that rap music. Uh, you, we'd also go if we did a Mark Wahlberg podcast. You, I think specifically, would like snap and kill me once you realize like that he's just going to be making like weird Catholic movies for the rest <laughs> of his career. Yeah, but you get some. You get some fucking heaters. You, you can talk about some some interesting Peter Berg stuff that's going on oh. in the world. Hatred's Day, one of the worst movies ever made. My firm belief. Deepwater Horizon, pretty fucking good. Yeah, that's the one that I was thinking That movie fucking cooks, yeah. though. He's uh, a lone, he's, is he the lone survivor? Is he sh- the lone I didn't survivor? see that. I was a fucking movie. I think he's the lone survivor. Peter Berg is a perfectly okay director. Uh, Just so weird that the guy from Last Seduction became like... yeah. The, the, the current macho man. A mid-level movie. studio hack who made fucking The Rundown and then a bunch <laughs> of movies that aren't as good as The Rundown. Do you? We've never talked about this. I know if there were like other friends of mine because we were talking about Peter Berg, I could just say the words, do you remember? And you would they would say yes. Um do you remember all the Instagram videos of him and his editor getting into fights during the edit of Mile 22? Definitely not. <laughs> do you not know what I'm talking about? I, I do not know what you're talking about right now. His editor kept posting Instagram stories of Peter Berg like screaming at him during the edit of Mile 22. And I think the editor was like, this is funny. But Peter Berg came across as like a total psycho who didn't know what he wanted at any given moment. Uh, And then you watch Mile 22 and it's like the most incompetently. I mean, have you seen Mile 22? I haven't, no. There's there's very famously a moment in Mile 22 where someone picks up a a plate of chocolate cake and it's like 18 cuts. (laughs) Right? Like Mile 22 is one of those movies. What's that movie about? It's about Mile 22. (laughs) He is, God, I haven't seen it so long. He's like, like Iko Uwais from The Raid is like, oh. a, like a, like a, like an Interpol guy or whatever, a special agent or something who's like gonna like testify against like a crime ring and they need to like, Wahlberg they need to get him needs, 22 miles or something. They need to get him on a plane to, to get him out of the country. Oh. But like, assassins are after them then like get 22 miles to the airport or something that movie fucking stinks cool you know it's a good movie what the raid oh oh you know it's a better movie the raid 2 raid 2 yeah <laughs> all day all day every day all right uh do you want to do the norton 
Mount Rushmore? I, we, I like I could do it. He's a great actor. Yeah. Uh did you know that Gareth Evans is making a new movie? The the raid guy? No, I didn't know that. All right. I just found this out yeah. today. Let me read you this log line and then let me read you this cast, okay? Okay. Log it's called Havoc. Log line. Wait, can uh, I guess what the movie's about? Sure. It's about uh it's about robots. No. No. <laughs> You're already wrong. Okay. Uh, after a drug deal goes awry, a detective must fight his way through a criminal underground to rescue a politician's estranged son while untangling his city's dark web of conspiracy and corruption. Oh my god! So already so you're good. like, it sounds so good. Already you're like, oh, he just made the raid two again, right? Yeah. Uh, ready for this cast? I don't know. Tom Who's Hardy. Oh god. <laughs> Forrest Whitaker. Jiu-Jitsu champion Tom Hardy. Jiu-Jitsu champion Tom Hardy. Uh, Forrest Whitaker. Our favorite. Timothy Oliphant. Oh, my God. Louise Guzman. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, man. Best movie I of feel like all you're time. lying to me. I feel no, like this is real. I feel like you know I had like kind of a rough day. You're like giving no. me this act of kindness by telling this me this is movie. Real. It's a real movie. Netflix is putting it out this year. Oh my god! I can't wait. Uh, I literally can't wait. Like I, I might have to like bombard the Netflix office and break through <laughs> the windows at night. I, I, I'll, I'm gonna Armageddon give me time the, the Netflix office. Give me, and I'm gonna, rushes. I'm gonna steal the cut of the film. When Connor uh, says he's gonna Armageddon time it, uh, listeners, you might think he is referencing the third act plot events of the film Armageddon time but he is actually referencing the fact that he stole costumes from the production office of Armageddon time <laughs> oh my god i i didn't i didn't realize the what the point i was making i you know i was going with that third act point but good call there um you know it's a great movie yeah jeremy strong come at me got your Armageddon jacket time. <laughs> have you seen moran too no Gareth Evans's first movie? No. Um it's it's not like as good as the Raid movies. It's definitely just like him doing that at like a much lower budget. Uh and like not having really like perfected it yet. But it's a it's a good time ass kicker of a movie. Can I ask you if you have seen a movie? Because I've yes. always had a suspicion that that movie might be the Grand Canyon of Edward Norton's career. Interesting. Just, Hit me. just based off of the poster of the movie, I've always suspected. Okay, but again, that. it's still Sammy Bagel Jr. in. <laughs> I've always suspected that the movie, the 2010 Robert De Niro film Stone. Yes, Sorry, I know what you're talking Edward about. Norton is his Grand Canyon because he has cornrows on the poster, and he—I think he plays an ex-convict. I'm not—I I really don't know what that movie's convict. actually about. I mean, I see Edward Norton in cornrows on that poster, and I'm just like, I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> yeah. You know, I also like. He's so fucking annoying in the score, and I know that's like the joke of the score is that he's incredibly annoying, but like he's still but annoying to watch. Maybe I will just start it off. He's, he's annoying in the score. He's also supposed to be annoying in rounders, but it's pretty enigmatic, you know, 
pretty like is, is that your your first pick for Mount yeah, Rushmore? I'll... Do you even get the first pick? I don't care. I don't think um, so. <laughs> it's yours. I'm just throwing it out there because I'm like you I go think with it, I think it actually probably I think it probably would belong on it. I I don't know. I'll go with it. I'll lock it in. You know what? Locking in the uh here's what I'm gonna say. Have not seen rounders in like 10 years. Could not speak in either direction, but I know you really like that movie. I, so I I'm gonna I, I will defer to you that on this movie, one. but I it it's probably like the it's probably the first movie that I watched and I was like, oh Edward Norton is having fun acting in this movie. Sure. Yeah. I get I get what you're saying there. Yeah, I I don't remember disliking it. He it's gets just to like, just be like he get he gets to just be like a witty but non-intellectual scumbag that's okay. just dragging Damon down with him to deeper deeper depths. It's his fourth movie. Yeah, it's insane. I think isn't his character's name Warm? Also, yep, I yeah. got that here. You yeah, know, that might be John Malkovich's movie. Grand Canyon. Malkovich <laughs> is insane in that movie. I love that performance. I'm sorry. That's what I remember. But yeah, no, it's fun go, to watch. It's definitely fun to yeah. watch. If you want to go with uh, that, yeah, let's do that. Okay. So I get two picks now. One of these is easy because I've gone on the record as saying that everyone in this movie maybe gives their career best performance in this movie. Uh, it's like the layup of the century. It's twenty. It's twenty fifth hour, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what you gonna fucking do. Um, if I was gonna like rank them, that would be that would be number one by far. I know, I know, like everyone else in that movie gets the flashier stuff to do, right? Because it's not necessarily like Norton. Aside from the know. bit he where he's pretty flashy stuff to do in that film, he. Yeah. But but so much of that movie is like everyone gets like a marquee scene where they get to really like flex their muscles. Barry and Pepper sure. just cooking. Pepper. Just let him cook. Pepper looking down on the World Trade Center destruction site. Yeah. I fucking enjoy the movie. And obviously Norton has that insane monologue halfway through the movie. Um where he ta- where he insults every racial and class class group <laughs> in New York City. It's like maybe the best scene in Spike Lee's filmography besides the ending of 25th Hour. Yeah. Um, but but speaking of the ending of 25th Hour, you know, we think a lot about how that's this incredible Brian Cox monologue, but Norton's doing such steady, quiet work to anchor everything else that goes on in that movie that he has to be the thing that carries it. Do you get what I'm saying? I do, yeah. But like he gives himself that one scene where he explodes, but so much of it is like he's almost playing support as the lead. I don't know. I think it's a beautiful performance. I love I just love what he's doing in the end, like completely wordlessly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. In the in the in those in those flash forwards. Yeah, that's easy. Okay. Um I think he's deceptively good in Fight Club. Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. picking Fight Club. I'm thinking about picking Fight Club because I, I think he's deceptively good in Fight Club. I think with the other actors in his age bracket who would have been capable of starring in a film like that at the time it was made, I don't think it works without no. him. Yeah. yeah, but I'm not picking him. I'm picking a different performance. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think this might be the first time a movie has appeared twice on a Rushmore. 
both of them were your picks too, I believe. Uh, I think you've practiced. Um, I think I got to go with Scoutmaster Randy Ward in Moonrise Kingdom. Is that where you thought it was going? I think that's the movie where like he already had that reputation. I mean, obviously the Incredible Hulk had just happened. He's in this movie, Pride and Glory, which is a movie that doesn't really exist, but also... Uh, oh, the problem, with, the problem the problem for actors with movies that don't exist is that the marketing campaigns still do exist so people are like aware that the actor is working but then when they don't hear about anything afterwards it like it 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 retains that aftertaste of well, like this movie oh, gets they must not be doing great because i keep hearing of this stuff that they're in but i never see them anywhere you get what i'm saying yeah yeah pride and glory gets fucked for different reasons and we'll talk it about does. it but yeah. you know i think the great like discovery of the past 10 years is that edward norton is one of our most gifted comedians yeah something well, that was, for, was that's what yeah, i was gonna say is exactly. like i remember i i remember very distinctly when moonrise kingdom came out i remember going to see that film in theaters i remember seeing edward norton in it and being like oh Edward Norton is this kind of actor. I really like Edward Norton. Yes! (laughs) Which was not a way I felt about him before that film. Yeah. And like, you know, Scoutmaster Ward is like the first time he ever really indulged in that. It's also the best time he ever really indulged in it. And he's been delightfully funny in other movies, but this just strikes me as, you know, the high watermark. And I, I mean, I think a really lovely performance that gets some like beautiful, you know, stuff at the end when he says like i'm not a math teacher who's a scout master on the side i'm a scout master who's a math teacher on the side that's that's very moving i mean there are better performances and more like heart-wrenching performances in moonrise kingdom uh and weirdly nowhere near my favorite wes anderson movie which is why it's weird that it's come up twice now um i did think about going with asteroid city uh i if he had like one or two more scenes in asteroid city that might be the one I slot in here. I have but, not yet seen it, but it is the movie that I, the ooh, next time I go to the theaters, it oh, will be the one I want. Yeah. Um, Well, then I won't say anything about it. Just if he had a couple more scenes, I think that might be a contender. But I'm going with the first, I'm going with the best, I'm going with Moonrise Kingdom. The thing about Norton deciding to work with Wes Anderson again is that he was able to give us that the best SNL cutaway. Yes, yes we've talked about the it. last 15 years. Um. <sighs> He's great. He's, he's fucking Wes on this podcast, man. I know he's amazing in that film. Oh, what I what what I was thinking about saying was, I think we need to institute institute a rule where if if a single film gets mentioned three times on three different Mount Rushmores, I think we just it has to be the next film that we do. Like the series needs to break. We, we do the gotta, film, and then it can never appear I mean, on a Mount Rushmore. Like it's on our list of the hierarchy. Like it's on our. It's I don't know our, our like treasures of cinema list or whatever you the fuck we're gonna call it our film spotting pantheon. As it it never gets to go. It never gets to go on a Mount Rushmore. Well, interesting. I like yeah. the three times rule. I don't know that Moonrise Kingdom is gonna. I don't uh, know if it'll ever again. happen with any film, but if it does well, happen, yeah, maybe some other West movies. Maybe uh, it. I mean, it could happen with a certain Spike Lee film. If Could happen with a certain Spike Lee film. Yeah. Um, like, okay, I'll say this. Uh, 
another movie where I'm like, well, everyone in that movie is giving a career best performance. So we'll probably saying? It, this. it obviously there's it obviously there's a Ten film from two thousand there's a film from two thousand six that like it but we, the problem is we would do that film before we were able to get to three Mount Rushmores of people. There's also a movie we're gonna yeah. talk about on this podcast. That is also true. Yeah. <laughs> That's the Mount Rushmore for like all eight hundred actors <laughs> who are in it. <laughs> All 800 actors and like every single crew yeah. person, every every single like artist that worked on that film. Okay, Edward Norton. I need great, to talk to you about that movie after this recording. Great in way. Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah. Um, he's he's like the best, uh, the best intelligence community bureaucrat ever in the Bourne Legacy. A movie Never that does not it. deserve him to give that performance in it. It's not the Bourne Legacy is three two-thirds of a really 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 good spy thriller and then the right. last third is like the most boring bike chase you've ever seen in your entire sure. life and it lasts like a full 30 minutes it's crazy it's really it's insane it's insanity that that movie ends the way it does when the opening yeah. of it is so competent um and also you've never seen you've never seen it cool no no I'm fucking watching the board. Are you going to be here. angry if I tell you something about it that like may or may not be a spoiler? It's revealed pretty early in the film. Is it that it takes place during Born? No, it's, it's it's kind of wackier than that. Uh, hit me. Okay. The whole deal with that movie is that <laughs> Jeremy Renner plays a guy who everybody else in the world thinks was killed in action during the war in Iraq. Okay. And he's given medication by this treadstone adjacent program that makes him faster and smart it's like super soldier shit yes i knew that's what that movie's about i knew that the whole idea is that he was like 12 iq points below the minimum to join the military and that if he doesn't get the smart medication in a fast enough time, he's just going to be really fucking stupid. And he keeps telling rachel vice about like i have a long ways to go down if i don't get this medication that's what that movie is about that movie is about jeremy renner being so scared he's gonna be an idiot again if he doesn't get the medication that makes him smart so uh let me look at it i I like him in glass onion um brain glass onion i like him in i I know what i'm thinking so i'm just kind of like riffing here i yeah he's He's good in Birdman. He's I very, very good. I hate in that he movie, but it's probably should have won the Academy Award that year, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I will say that. You will not say that when I remind you who the nominees were, but I will say that. Who were the nominees that year? Can you tell me off the top of your head? Or do you have to look it up? Uh, I can tell you three of them off the top of my head, but I'm okay, pulling it up right now. Well, I can tell you right now J.K. Simmons wins. And for best supporting, yeah, yeah, and um, Ruffalo for Foxcatcher, and then Duvall for The Judge, which I've never seen, <laughs> and Ethan Hawke for Boyhood. Yeah, I I ooh. think it's Norton. I that's hard because Simmons it's is such a funny so self parody, though, right? Yeah. Like, he's so locked into what's annoying about he's him. So- clearly aware of how exactly that's why i think he probably grew up as a person and isn't a diva anymore what's your pick what do we have we have rounders we have (laughs) america do we have american history x would you go you went with 25th hour rounders 25th hour moonrise kingdom what's the fourth one ed norton moonrise kingdom we gotta bring Uh, this fucking train to the station i'm tired (laughs) i was 
<laughs> I'm really tired. Uh, you mentioned it. Uh, like I said, yeah. I yeah, don't think I the know. movie works without him. So I'm yeah. going to go with Fight Club. Yeah, he's incredible yeah. in Fight Club. Yeah. Again, I know this is kind of like a a hobby horse of mine, but he's letting Pitt do a lot of the fireworks in Fight Club. Do you get what I'm saying? Part of me wants to take Kingdom Heaven, but I'm gonna never seen it. I would veto it yeah. on my anti Ridley stance. <laughs> yeah, why did you say that? That uh, well, Pitt's the one giving the fireworks. And... Yeah, I I feel like I say this about a, a lot of movies, but like Pitt gets to give the fireworks show because Norton's doing the fucking real work of grounding that movie. That's a hundred percent true. Yeah. yeah, he's so fucking funny in it. Too. I know I said. Moonrise is the first comedy performance, but Norton's so it's a different kind of comedy. It is, yeah. I love that movie. He like the way he's able to not get overpowered by Pitt is what works about it. Yeah. Because like I said, like any other actor in that age bracket at that time would have just gotten blown out of the water. And then when you get to the end of the film and the big revelations are happening, you wouldn't be on board to follow like, that character throughout the to the ending. To use my favorite analogy that comes up again and again, and you always get mad at me when I do this, but if Matt Damon played that role, <laughs> it doesn't work. I mean, yeah, I in this sense, I, I very much agree. Yeah. Damon is not great in every movie. I know I'm using, yet. I am using Damon as it's like the born, the, the born identity. Cole is a good movie and he's almost, movie he is, that he's good in he this is the take this is the take the born identity is a good movie and damon is almost irreplaceable in that movie except in my opinion if you had a fairly sober sober colin farrell in that role i think it still works the born identity is a stinky movie <laughs> and if matt damon were not doing like herculean work in it everyone would agree with me um I like using Damon as like the measuring stick because I think he the is barometer. almost the like perfect classical movie star of that crop of men, right? Like yeah. everyone else, including Colin, is going to be a few degrees off center, including Norton, who like comes out the gate is like, no, I'm the next great actor, right? Damon's Damon's fucking the perfect bowl of oatmeal for Goldilocks, right? He's like, he's right in the middle of all of them. I think That's of Damon. I, like I think of that run from like 2000. When did Ocean's Eleven come out? 2001. 2001. So from like 2001 through 2007, Damon, I just think of like there was nobody at that time who was his age who could play the straight guy in a movie the way that he was cast to play the straight guy in all of these movies. We got it. And I. I'm not even saying straight in terms of sexuality. No, I'm just I know saying, saying. Like, I know what you're saying. Down the middle, straight American white man. And I think of him in uh, Syriana and I'm like, that's not a great movie. But he's the only one they could have cast in that role at that's, that time. That's, a, that's why yeah. I like thinking of the hypothetical of what if it was Damon in X movie? Just right? standard good looking white guy in the movie. Yeah. Cool. Uh, how do you feel about American History X? Do you have Bad movie. Opinions. Bad movie. You see the fucking like nightmare production on the screen. Norton's hamming it up. I don't understand why the curb stomp is so like iconic. I mean, literally iconic in the way it's, that it is. Because neo Nazis think yeah. it's cool. It's so disgusting. It's so disgusting. <laughs> that part of the movie m makes me 
feel like I'm going to vomit just thinking about it. And I know they don't even really show anything. But yeah, I guess we had to talk about it. Primal Fear. It's cool, Great. We've uh, talked about it. Cool introduction. Yeah. Do we have anything to say about Pride and Glory? I think we've said all we could, essentially. It's just, um, a, it's just a mess. And it never... How do you feel about the bad uh, Quiet Man-esque ending where they just fight it out? In it's the bar? dumb. It should be longer. You and your fucking Quiet Man shoutouts. My God. You do it all That's the, the time. first time I've shouted out. It's not. It's the second time. Oh, my God. I've shouted out two times in, like, <laughs> yeah, 20 know. episodes. <laughs> yeah, John Ford sucks. Um, it's just, like, everything in this movie, I'm just like, I just don't care. So here's the thing about this movie, though, that's important. Because... I kind of talked on Cassandra's dream about how that movie never had a chance because in Bruges because it's right yeah. around the corner. This is kind of a similar situation in which this movie also doesn't exist. And this is the other Colin, the third in a trilogy of Colin Farrell crime films where he's paired up with another actor in 2008 right but here's the thing about this movie not existing it is actually in Bruges fault right like it's implicitly in Bruges fault with um Cassandra's dream but this movie is supposed to come out in March of 2008 and when in Bruges blows up new line just takes it off the schedule because they know it's going to get overshadowed by In Bruges, which means when they actually open it in October, they have no real like justification to really push it. Right. Like yeah. this maybe could have been a bigger deal, but it gets dumped because everyone knows like, well, In Bruges is going to suck all the oxygen out of the room to to push a film like that requires to push a film weeks like that before it comes out. Less than a yeah. month before it comes out, right? Ads. The ad campaign has been in full swing for this. That, that's what. I, that's what I'm getting to. Is yeah. that when you've already been marketing a film, and it's not that this film was marketed a ton to begin with, but it had an adequate marketing campaign for its size and for what New Line expected of mm -hmm. it. And New Line's not necessarily a studio that marketed it like crazy, anyways, um, or did anything viral in that sense. But to push a film and then try to match it again with another adequate marketing campaign almost requires like tripling the budget in the long run of what it actually costs to put the film out there. Yes. And on top of that, when it gets pushed, Gavin O'Connor like goes to the press and like talks a lot of shit about Bob Shea who runs yeah. new line cinema and kind of says that Bob Shea was maybe just looking for an excuse to take it off the calendar and tried to shop tried to see if he could get another studio to come in and buy the movie and release it so like and again i get it if you're gavin o'connor like that's an awful position to be put in right does not really give new line cinema a reason to want to give this movie an actual proper release <laughs> no and yeah. they open it on 2500 screens but like the whole thing's just a fucking mess uh, and the movie has no chance. Like it opens in, they release it in 2,500 screens. It opens at number five. Can I, once again, can I just read you this box office? Because I think like 
we used to be a country, a real country. This is a real wild box office here. We used to live in a society. All right, here's here's your top 10, 10 to 1. Number 10, Quarantine, which is the remake of the Spanish mm-hmm. zombie movie Wreck. Yeah. Number 9, Ridley Scott's Body of Lies. Decent. This is about to get real okay. 2008 for you. Number 8 is Eagle Eye, the DJ Caruso follow-up <laughs> to Disturbium. Have I ever given you my baby. DJ Caruso uh, conspiracy theory? No, what is it? I think DJ Caruso was a pseudonym used by actors who direct their own movies. <laughs> let me uh Stance let, me, elaborate. let me take a look. Yeah, let me take a look. Um yeah, I mean this I mean Okay, two for the money. Who directed that? McConaughey? Yeah. You say? And then Disturbia. Kilmer directed Salt and Sea. LeBuff directed Disturbian Eagle Eye. Well, uh, then you hit I am number four. Yeah. Really? Here's okay. Really, all I'm saying is that Vin Diesel directed Triple X Return of Xander Cage. I mean, and you can't tell me he obviously did. Yeah. Um, number seven this week was W. Uh, number eight this week was number six was The Secret Life of Bees, Pride and Glory at number five, opening behind Beverly Hills Chihuahua in its fourth week. Uh, Max Payne in its second week. Oh man! And Mark then the Wahlberg. two, the two big premieres of this of of this October twenty fourth weekend. Saw five because if it's Halloween, it must be a saw. Uh, saw five, maybe the most insane movie ever made. Have you seen Saw five? Yeah, but it, I can't. I Listeners, Saw five is a feature length retcon. The twist at the end of Saw four is so insane. That Saw 5 is just, like, scenes from the earlier movies with, like, lengthened and extended to justify the twist at the end of Saw 4. And then opening number one this week, probably the most insane phenomena, box office phenomena of our lifetime, if we think about it. It's High School Musical 3, the second sequel to a TV movie that opened theatrically and made almost $300 million. That's this, wild. This box office is not what I was expecting. It's bad. And it's making me understand kind of the state of where we are right now, based on if this is what it was like in October of 2008. Yeah. Uh, outside the top 10, we also have Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, uh, the best Greenwich Village movie ever made. Uh, Sex Drive, a movie that I cannot believe got produced. Uh, and my beloved Rachel Getting Married. Uh, which was shot by a cinematographer whose name I am blanking on, but who also shot this movie, right? Uh, is it Aiden Quinn's brother? Oh, God, I'm trying to pull it up. I, I, I think it's Aiden I Quinn's went brother. on that tangent. Declan Quinn. Oh, he's Aiden Quinn's brother, yeah. yeah. Um, Declan Quinn, really good cinematographer, uh, shot Rich Getting Married, which is probably the best-looking movie of 2008. And I will say, to this movie's credit, this movie looks really fucking good. A lot it, of really good handheld stuff. A lot of really good use of like super low light photography and like the trap houses in the back alleys and stuff. That's what I was going to say. Even I though they're think, not really alleys in New York, but whatever. I think it looks great when it's clear that they were shooting on a stage. Yeah. I don't think it looks good on location. That's yes. my personal feeling about it. But I think, I think what he's doing with like light and color and camera movement. He does such the interesting, most stuff. interesting stuff with the movie. Well, he does such interesting stuff <laughs> with the composition when it's clear that they've built a, a set for him to kind of yes 
be more particular about how it's like i'm thinking of like when norton comes on to the tenement building where Farrell's in the process of killing Tezo and he's walking up the staircase and you just see these like shafts it looks of light like a fucking pedro costa yeah. movie yeah there's like so little light there uh it looks it, that looks great i think um that's what this movie has going for it this movie is also I'm surprised we haven't talked about Departed more when it's like this. So to. much of this movie is about them being Irish. And, yeah, but I don't, I don't want to. But it's not. But that's the thing is like that. The Departed is actually a movie about Irish people, and this is a movie about people who are Irish that has nothing to do with them being Irish. You get what I'm saying? <laughs> that nihilism of the Departed doesn't exist in this. Yes. Film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... It's just, it's just bad, man. It's just bad. Uh, do you have a game for me? Because oh. I do have a game for you. Oh boy, <laughs> I'm going back to an old favorite. Because for once we could, I have gone to the box office website, the numbers. Oh boy, and I have grabbed a keyword from this movie, and I want you to guess based on the domestic box office. <laughs> The top highest five highest grossing movies that are about following in your father's footsteps. Oh boy. <laughs> following in your father's footsteps. I know it's insane. Oh man. I guess I, it's time to start guessing. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh boy. Okay. Uh, I'll give you a hint. The oldest Star movie Wars. On, give you a hint. The oldest movie on this list is from 2011. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> How could Star Wars not be on there? Um, probably because no one tagged it. Yeah, probably. That's such a weird tag. I can't believe these tags exist. I know. That's on, why uh, I love this. Yeah. Following. I would have given you. I would have given you corrupt cops, but the one this? they had listed highest for corrupt cops was Fast and Furious Six, a movie that does not have corrupt cops in it. Is the judge on no. this list? No. Okay. Uh, Three of these movies are animated. The other two oh are franchise god. movies. Oh my god! Okay, um, start thinking about the animated ones. Uh, All right, number one: How to Train Your Dragon. No, there's stuff with the dad. Number in that one: one yeah. I have never seen this movie. Um, this movie's definitely like the worst movie ever made. Um, it's in that rarefied camp where even though it's number one. It never actually went number one on the box office, but its sequel did. It's one of the few movies for which that's the case. Um, huh. It has a real A-list cast. We're going to do it on this podcast one day. Huh. Stars McConaughey, Reese Witherspoon, Seth MacFarlane, John C. Riley, Taron Edgerton, Scarlett Johansson, Jennifer Hudson, Peter Serafinowicz, Nick Kroll, Beck Bennett, <laughs> Jay Farrow, Nick Offerman, Leslie Jones, Rhea Perlman, Lorraine Newman, Brad Morris. I think that's it for names. So this is from 2017. 16. 16. Gets blocked by number one by Rogue, Rogue One. Has a real generic title. Oh, boy. It's directed by a guy who was briefly being talked about as like a thing and then didn't make a movie for 10 years and then came back and switched to animation and made this in its sequel. But I have like absolutely the no idea what this is. This is the Garth Jennings film Sing. Oh. 
that sucks. What well, <laughs> what on earth would that have to do? I mean, I've never seen that movie. I guess I someone follows. The... I guess there's a father in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. Number two is also an animated movie from 2016. Is it Coco? 2016. But you're on the right Coco track. Coco on the list. Yeah, Coco's okay. not on the list. I would actually argue that Coco is more of a father's footsteps movie than this is. But like, what's a more beloved Disney movie from that kind of era? Like real beloved, like the real canonized one, even though it's not good. Um, even though it's not good. So it's not Pixar or is it Pixar? I don't think it's Pixar. I think it's mainline Disney. It's main has really Disney. good songs. Should have won the Oscar for song songs. Yeah, this is mainline Disney. It's not as good as Coco. Coco's good. Is it Moana? It's Moana. Okay. Uh, number three is from 2018. It's a superhero movie. It's a superhero movie, but it's, is it animated? No. I'm already stuck behind. It's it, a wait. good superhero movie. It's a good superhero movie from 2018. One of the better ones from a certain franchise. Isn't it funny how you say 2018 and it's like, it's just like a whirlwind. I'm like, what, what was happening? So 2018 was Endgame. No. Nope. Uh, is it Black Panther? It's before Endgame. It's not Black Panther, though. Black Panther should be on this list. <laughs> it sounds like, yeah. Uh, it is Marvel. It is Marvel. It's. It is actually about following in your father's footsteps. Like, that is actually a major thread in the movie. And it's not Black Panther? It's not Black Panther. It's the other one. It's better than Black Panther. It's better than Black Panther. Is it Thor uh, nope. Ragnarok? No. Is it... So we're we're talking... We're after... It's after Infinity War, but before Endgame? It's, it might be one of the two movies that falls right in the pocket there. Walton Goggins is in it. Ant Michael Payton. Ant Man Two. It's Ant Man Two. It's Ant Man and the Lost. Right. Who's following in who? She's following in her dad. Yes, that, that's like such a tension is that she like wants to do it and he won't let her. It's like the inverse where it's not like she's like being bared down by the weight of the responsibility. She's like not being allowed to do it. She's like constantly having to fight with him. I thought she already was doing it by that point. It's more of a thing in the first one, but it's in the second. Yeah. Um. Number four uh, is also a movie from 2018. Uh, it is a sequel to a semi-reboot. Um, the father-son stuff in this movie is devastating. The guy who played the father should have gotten a Best Sporting Actor nomination this year. It's a sports movie. Sorry. Um, this is an animated movie? This is not an animated movie. It's a live-action sports this is, movie. This is a live-action... Uh, is it Cree 2? It's Cree 2. It's Ivan Drago and it's uh, Ivan Drago and his kid. That shit's so good. Yeah. Some of the drugs. Number five is Hop. I don't I don't care (laughs) to get you to guess Hop. I want you to. I was never in a million. I want you to guess number six on this list. Number six is from 1974. 1974. It's one of the great movies. I think we've actually done this. Tried to get you to guess this one on this podcast before. Really? Or a different. No, I tried to get you to guess the other movie this director had come out this same year, which is maybe like the most insane one-two punch. Oh, any director has ever had come out. Is Lumet the director? No, not yes. like a Lumet level director. 
not a Lumet. I would say a director who has a really good reputation, but really for three movies, two of which came out in 1974. I'm really struggling with this. Yeah. Um, this is like, obviously, this is, we're talking about like a classic. A movie. classic, but also a movie that is positioning itself as a sequel to a classic. But it's is not diff- the- it's it not the diff- Godfather Part Two, is it? No, no, no. Yeah, but that is another one-two punch of 1974. That's what. But I was like, he has he's made more than yeah. three no, good movies. No, no. Yeah. This is this is a sequel to a movie from the 30s. I'll leave it to you to be like Coppola. Only three good ones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's and it. they are Tetro, Peggy Sue got married, and one from the heart. <laughs> and Jack, <laughs> the one about the kid, um, the 40 year old. 12 year old Ugh, um couple of men can't wait for megalopolis this is a sequel to it's an official sequel to a film from the third i mean how official can you be they shot on the same sets how about that oh man and it's the uh, same studio i believe but like it's also maybe a bit of a parody no it's a different studio but they shot on the same sets are the characters supposed to be the same no, it's about the the son of the protagonist of the film from the 30s trying to do what his dad did. I've got like no idea. Gene Hackman's in this movie in like one scene and he like runs away with the thing. Cloris Leachman's in this movie. <laughs> Madeline Kahn's in this movie. Marty Feldman's in this movie. Peter okay, Boyle's lost. in this movie. I'm lost. I have no idea what we're talking about. Gene Wilder's in this movie. She, oh, oh, it's Young Frankenstein. It's Young Frankenstein. I oh. think it's funny that the top six following in your father's footsteps movies are Sing, Moana, Ant Man Two, Creed Two, Hop, and Young Frankenstein. That's great. That's that's like um. <laughs> That's wild to me because uh, I, I, for some reason, it's like that style of film is so like it holds up so well today that I'm not even thinking of it like within its place in time. Do you kind yeah. of understand what I'm saying? Like you could watch Young Frankenstein today and it is such a great it is such a great parody slash companion piece to those films from the 30s that like it feels like that same film could be made today because of its stylization. Yeah. Yeah. And because its humor is just elemental. It's not uh, like adjusted for inflation, that movie made almost six hundred million dollars. Six hundred million. That movie was a huge hit. That's yeah. Insane. It made eighty six million. So adjusted for inflation fifty years later. What a picture. What a picture. Uh you know what, what flopped is Pride and Glory. Bad Open movie. number five, dropped like a stone. Um why don't I, I give you? Be. Why don't I give you one a game real quick? <laughs> this episode's gonna be three hours long. <laughs> yeah, I'll just I'll see if you can get some of these. Yeah, hit me. Hit me, uh, hit me. IndieWire has the best New York crime, New York City crime movies. Uh, okay. This is from 2014. Dog Day. Dog Day Afternoon is not on the list. Insane. Yeah, it's considered too important. They have like a short list of movies okay. that are like too important to. Actually so is Serpico also? 
Serpico is also in the two important list. Serpico, I'll read off the two important list to you. The Serpico trilogy. is the movie that Pride and Glory wants to be. Sorry to cut you off. I just wanted to say that. It, it wants to be Serpico and it also wants to be the French Connection. Yes. So um, French Connection is also on. French Connection is also on the two important list. Man, um, I was uh, watching bits from the French Connection on TV with my parents like a few weeks ago. And we were just watching the beginning when they're like chasing that guy through the streets of Brooklyn. Yeah. And it's insane when they like drag him down that street and start like kicking his ass that you're like, wow, that's like one of the most developed parts and like expensive parts of Brooklyn now. And it's this yeah. like total shit hole 50 years ago. God, what a movie. You have The Godfather, Goodfellas, Taxi Driver, which is that a crime movie? Like, no. uh, I'm not necessarily sure. No. Mean Streets, Once Upon a Time in America, Serpico. Gangs of New York, The Taking of Pelham, one, two, three, Death Which Wish. Which one? Um, the original one. Fucking I, I'm cowards. Assuming, I'm assuming it's the original <laughs> one. It doesn't say, but that that's yeah, the yeah, assumption I'm going to make right here. Um, Leon the Professional, The French Connection, Dog Day Afternoon, On the Waterfront, which is about fucking New Jersey. Yep. <laughs> Not New York City. Movie. So just just to clarify, IndieWire made a top ten list. Of the it's a top best... 20 list. Well, no, and, uh, but no, no, yeah. no, no, no. They made the top 10 list of the best New York crime films, then took that list and said, no, these movies don't count, and then started again, is what you're yeah. telling me. Yeah, that's exactly what they did, which is what I'm saying we should do if we mention a film three times sure, on three it's different like, Mount Rushmore's. Do you ever listen to Film Spotting? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah, they have the Pantheon, where if a movie shows up too many times in their top fives... It becomes ineligible. I think that's fine. Um, like and it. Midnight Cowboy. There's also Midnight Not Cowboy. Not a crime film. <laughs> yeah. Just because he's breaking the law. Okay. Give me, start giving me hints. Then, okay. You got one from, you have one from 1990. Um, that's not Goodfellas. And that's. <laughs> it stars an actor that we are going to talk about. We talked about him. We talked about a film that he is in with Colin somewhat last week. Because of the director that we were talking about. Seven Psychopaths. Oh, King of New York. Yes, King of New Man. York by Abel Ferrara. Seen, have you seen King of New York? I have seen King of New York. That thing's fucking incredible. Fucking crazy. <laughs> um, Then we have a movie from the 40s that has an iconic Irish cop, although nobody ever mentions him. And uh, I think it's supposed to be an influence of Pride and Glory, but I'm not necessarily sure. I uh it's taught in a lot of classes when you're going over realist noir, if you want to classify it as that. No, the Naked Cities in the fifties. Yep. It is the yep. Naked City. Is that from yeah. 49? 48. I thought it was from 50. Nope. 48. Asphalt Jungles from 50. Asphalt Jungles from 50. Naked City. Yeah. We have a film from 84 uh that Prince has uh the name of a New York City neighborhood in the title. So not Prince of the City. No. Uh, that's a great movie, though. Um, a name of a neighborhood. Neighborhood Soho. Nope. Noho. Nope. Eho. Nope. Is there an Eho yet? <laughs> uh, uh, not the Pope of Greenwich Village? Yes. That is I, did, I didn't know that was a crime film. <laughs> I didn't either. Um... I was in the right area of Manhattan, I'll have you know. We have a uh, a film, another film from 1948, 
uh, a director who is not by today's standards considered one of the greats, one of the masters from that so period, not, but really yeah. specialized in noirs and really specialized in moody noirs specifically. Who's in this? Have I seen uh, this? It's indie wire, so I've seen it, right? It's not like a deep cut. I this is this one is kind of a deep cut. Um Richard Conti is the star of it. Thieves Highway? No, that's, no, that's why LA. I don't know. That's LA. Yeah. Um Conti is also in he's in a bunch of stuff. I just watched him in something where he was the bad guy. I fucking love Richard Conti. What is it? It is Cry of the City. Never seen Cry. Okay, From yeah. Good, good, good for you, Indy Wire. Yeah. By you Robert Sidemack. Sean Mac, uh, Sean Mac fucking rules. Um, you ever seen the Spiral Staircase? Yes, like serial killer movie that has the first. That's the first. uh, That's the first serial killer movie ever. Uh, no, M is the first serial killer movie ever. Or not? Sorry, that's the first slasher movie ever. Yes. Uh, well, really, what it is is that he basically invents Jalo murder scenes in that movie because the killings are so insane. What did I? Sorry, I'm just looking at what did I see Richard Conti in recently? Um, I can't the remember. He's I haven't watched that recently, but he's very good in The Godfather. Uh, okay. Next, next one on the list is Spike Lee. I feel like it is not the one. Like, uh, there's clockers? like four. No, there's like four you could throw out before you get to this one. If is it Inside Man? No, I love this movie. I don't know if I've ever had an excuse to talk about it with you. A crime film. Yeah. Notably, notably takes place in the Bronx and not Brooklyn, like most of his. And it's not Clockers. No. That takes place in Brooklyn, Inside Man. Ooh. Stars. Those are the only two crime films it's, I can think It's of. more of an ensemble piece. Uh, Clockers. <laughs> stars oh. a white actor. Stars a white actor. What is it? It's um, Summer of Sam. 1998 not a crime film <laughs> no not a even. masterpiece one of his best movies fucking incredible not a crime film no it's not um that we have great, a right? we have another it deep it also cut. doesn't star a white actor it starts well, a hispanic actor adrian brody I said it's an ensemble piece. Leguizamo is the star of that movie. Stop making. Yeah, I just think it's interesting that you know it's like one of the first leads that that is about non well white people, really. Danny Aiello is kind of the lead of Do the Right Thing. Yeah, but it's like neighborhood. The neighborhood that it's set in in Summer of Sam is a white neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, which is out of the ordinary. I mean, obviously, like Jungle Fever has a white lead. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, another. This one's also a deep cut. I would say it's from 1961. Um, oh, uh, blast of silence. Yes, yeah. Not a deep cut in this house, baby. <laughs> have you seen that movie, man? Uh, I don't think I have. You gotta watch that movie. That's one yeah. of the great Christmas movies. That's what I keep hearing. You know, it's like that movie is like the death knell of film noir. And then it's also half like a John Cassavetes, Shirley Clark, like mumbly New York character study movie. Like it like it like ping pongs between the two modes in a way that is like textual. That movie's next level good. Oh, my God. Everyone watch Alan Barron's Blast of Silence. All right. Next on I the think list. They show that at BAM like every Christmas, dude. You should go next year if they're doing you it. You already named this movie. Inside Man. Clockers. No, 1980s. 
Prince of the City. Yes. Have you seen that? I have seen that. Better than Serpico. Sorry. Uh, it's basically. I don't know. Serpico yeah, it is. so good. Listeners, if you've never seen Prince of the City, uh, it's basically Lumet doing Serpico again. Um, it's another true story about like a cop who goes undercover to like uproot corruption. The difference is, is that Prince of the City is like three hours and 20 minutes long and it's the driest procedural of all time. R.I.P. Treat Williams, who's fucking insane in that movie. Can I tell you uh, something about Serpico that I, I always thought for some reason? Sure. I love Serpico. Um, Don't get me wrong. Just since we were already talking about Wes Anderson today. In Rushmore, when he's doing the school play about the undercover cop that's mm-hmm. undercover as a priest, for whatever reason, I got it stuck in my head that he was doing a school play of Serpico. Then the first oh. time I watched Serpico, I was waiting for the moment where he goes undercover as a priest, and it never <laughs> happened. And I was really confused. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I got it stuck in my head that he was that it was an ode to Serpico in Rushmore. Can I say something maybe contentious? Sure. Rushmore is... Probably my least favorite live action Wes Anderson movie. Oh, uh, yeah, I think that's that or Bottle Rocket, that man. Sorry, sure. sorry. What's um, worse than it? What's worse than it? I mean, Darjeeling is Darjeeling fucking rules. This it's, is where this is where I'm like, are, no, all his movies are good. Bro, you that's gotta watch Asteroid like, City. Oh my god, it's so beautiful. I actually I prefer Rushmore to the Royal Tannenbaum. Fuck. You, this podcast <laughs> is over. Uh, Mark Tilly, if you're 19... listening, do you want to be the new co-host of this podcast? 1958. Oh, God. Hints, uh, hints. New York. Jerry Orbach makes his feature I keep, uh, debut. I keep forgetting that it's New York, and so I start thinking of, like, other... Like San Francisco films. Or, I yeah. said Thieves Highway, which is a movie uh... set in San Francisco. <laughs> Robert Lagia is the lead of this. Lagia, fifty-eight. Based on a based on a novel by Ed McBain. Oh, so it's is it cop killer, cop hater, whatever it's cop called. Cop hater. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've never read those books, but I should. I actually don't know if we should keep going because the list just keeps getting. Just weirder. just rattle off. The, okay, then we'll stop. Yeah. Um, I'll rattle them off to you. We yeah, have uh, after cop hater. We have the Dark Corner from nineteen forty-six. Literally never um, heard of it. Henry Hathaway directed. Hathaway's uh, Lucille Ball is in it. Um, okay. Quick Change from 1990. Eh, 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 eh. <laughs> disqualified. Cartoon New York City. Super racist. Disqualified. <laughs> Mirage Sorry, I know from 1965. Mirage? Yeah. Remember that. Uh, people fucking love Quick Change. That movie's not very is. good. Sorry. I think Gregory Peck stars in Mirage. We'll see. Um, New Jack City, 1991. Too fucking low. Have you seen New Jack City? I have, yeah. Oh my god, that is a masterpiece. What do you prefer, New Jack City or um, King of New York? King of New York. They're King both New York is great. King of yeah. New York is uh, just this fucking insane, beautiful thing. I don't like what I'm about to say. Okay. But I'm going to say it anyway. What is it? King of New York is the movie Carlito's Way wants to be. Oh, and well, I, I don't know about that. I love Carlito's Way. I don't know about to that. I don't know about clear. that. I'm not sure about that. Because I think Abel Ferrara is making a film about like 
he's Abel Ferrara is making a film about almost like the only thing that can dominate this new urban space is like evil incarnate almost. And De Palma is making a film about how like De Palma's doing the Godfather part three thing, which is like you, no matter how hard you try to get out of it, you're going to get pulled back in yeah. if you're around it. Yeah. I just love King of New York, man. I should get that Blu-ray. I don't even like Ferrara that much. Uh, that movie's just undeniable. How do you feel about OG Bad Lieutenant? Because I think Bad. that could also count. I Stinky. I I really like a stinker. Bad, original you know, recipe Bad Lieutenant. Really you know what's like. a great movie? I do like uh, Portocol also. Portocol is incredible. I also think Portocol is also a great movie. And I like how they they like Herzog and Ferrara like. I I I it's it's so funny to me that they can't see the good parts of each other's film well that, like but you know they have what... to step out of the way to like <laughs> knock each other's yeah. version of that you know what down. happened there right that it yeah that it was, Herz... it was but that's not herzog's fault no it's not his yeah. fault but herzog like had a finished film and yeah. the studio said we own the rights to bad lieutenant this is a bad lieutenant remake now so like of course herzog's pissed off and of course ferrara's pissed off nobody went into that project intending to remake anything you know who's in a in Bad Lieutenant Port of Call in New Orleans? Tal Kilmer, Shea Wiggum. Yes, he is. Yeah. Shea Wiggum's in everything. You, you know, know who's Eva Mendez, who's in We on the is. Night. Yeah, yes, just start. Is. I'm just gonna start connecting them for no reason whatsoever. Just all these movies. I all fucking right. love Shea Wiggum, man. We go to um Fort Apache, the Bronx. Never seen it. I hear it. Super racist. <laughs> That's just the uh, reputation that movie he has. Your favorite movie of all time, Cruising, 1980. You there? I just saluted. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I'm reading the list. I'm not looking at you. We do Bad Lieutenant. It's on the list. And we own the night. Back to back. One right after the other. Then Can you I go flying something? into Clute. Yeah, sure. Too low. Yeah. Rude to Clute. I know. Clute almost belongs on that original list. Up at the front. Yeah. This well, yeah. this was 2014, so this was before uh Clute got the weird, like almost showgirls reclamation project. You know what I'm <laughs> gonna say? Not that like people didn't like Clute, but I feel like those movies are in conversation. Those like yeah, like intentionally kind of like performative movies about sex work. Clute also has the whole trans girl thing going for it, which is one of the most interesting, like yeah, late breaking fandoms that has ever broken out for a movie that Clute is like a, a canonical film amongst trans cinephiles. For what's weirder? I what's weirder? Totally the trans get. thing, the trans thing going on with Clute, or the Baba Duke as like queer icon? Okay, yeah, totally different. To be clarified, I don't. No, think... I'm just saying. I'm saying. I'm not saying they're the same. Yeah. I'm saying what's yeah. least, what's less expected, or like what, 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 what was like. What was more like out of left field? The Babadook is trans as queer icon thing is just a dumb joke. <laughs> the 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 clute trans thing is real, and I don't actual wanna... has like actually has like textual reason. For yes, like I that. I completely understand why so many trans women film critics like respond to clute um I, and I don't want to say it's weird because like it's a, once once you like put that idea in your head it like oh it's so i totally get it i just think it's interesting that like this movie can be a big hit and then 45 years later get like the context around it completely transformed 
I find yeah. that very fascinating with Clute of how people talk about that movie. The Babadook gay thing is just annoying. Clute it's mostly a joke. Thing. Like it doesn't you know stem from anything original about the the movie. You know what the problem with Clute is? Ugh, what do you? That it's about John Clute. Right, like that—that that is the problem with the, the movie. There's a version that of that like, movie that, for I'm whatever like, reason, that shouldn't exist like that. I that know. where it's like it's named Clue, and like that's like, the the narrative vehicle of the film. And I don't think this is a contentious point for the people who adore Clute. Like we can all agree, if that movie was just about a sex worker played by Jane Fonda, like going about her day, it's a better movie than the weird like neo noir. That's going on in that actual. Movie. I don't. I don't know if the neo of sapping it of the neo noir makes it a better movie. I don't like the I, mystery. But I, think, but I no. The I actually think the mystery is pretty intriguing. I think, I, I. But what you're saying is that, for whatever reason, it can't reconcile Jane Fonda being the central, yes, attraction of focus in the film with the mystery that's happening at the same time. Yes. and if it could yes. synthesize a union between the two, then it I would mean, be a better film. Cruising is the better version of Clute, and I think they're very similar movies. And the re- the thing that Cruising is able to pull off that like Clute can't is that Cruising like is able to shove all that interesting sexual tension and like wariness of being observed and how do like you interact with the camera as like a sexual object who exists to be observed onto the detective character, right? Like it collapses Clute and Fonda into the same character. And that's why Cruising is a masterpiece. And Clute just can't do that. So you're left being like half this movie fucking rules and half this movie is kind of boring. No disrespect to Sutherland. I think it's just a problem with the movie. Sorry to tell myself as a bit of a clue skeptic, but was there something you were going to say about one of these other films before I rudely kept going and cut you off? How are you going to put summer of Sam on this list and not inside (laughs) man or clockers, a movie that like does not get its due as being a Have you seen clockers? I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's Spike Lee doing an early draft of the wire. That thing fucking whips. Oh my God. It's so good. It's one of his Um, best movies. You have the Bronx Tale from 1993. I've never seen it. You've never seen the Bronx Tale? Yeah, I need to because famously I'm the person who's like the Good Shepherd's a masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, so I should see a Bronx Tale. That's kind of crazy that you've that you've never seen it. You do um, we think he's going to direct a third movie? Like we're on track for it now, timeline wise. I don't know because uh, he doesn't seem like he has that kind of energy. What made the Irishman so special was that he seemed. To be like, Marty's giving me another shot. I gotta give him what I have while I yeah. have it. Did you, you know? see the Killers of the Flower Moon trailer that dropped today? I did. He um, seems to be really spry in it. Yeah, I did not does. recognize that it was him narrating till it hard cut to him because I was like, that's just not the energy level I'm used to from De Niro anymore. No, it's um, wild that they're selling that movie like as fucking. But again, it it seems like it, it seems like you're getting it. Yeah, because of Marty. Not just, it's yeah. not because De Niro is like that that up for it on his own. You get what I'm saying? I just wish he would make a direct a third movie. I think he's a. I mean, again, I've never seen a Bronx Tale, but everyone loves it, and The Good Shepherd's fucking incredible. Just be nice if he directed another movie. Yeah, I just wonder what he would direct because the the Bronx Tale. 
a Bronx Tale is a like his most knowing what you what we know about his personal life seems to be his most like lucid proclamation about the way he feels about his childhood maybe and i know that like his relationship with his father is a lot different than the relationship that the kid in the movie has with his with the de niro character but i think it's more like the upbringing in that environment seems to be very um autobiographical in a way i yes. again i'm projecting here and the good shepherd is like him making this statement about what america actually is yeah that's why i think yeah. it'd be interesting if he did something else. i don't know if he hasn't what i'm saying is i don't know if he has another statement like that maybe that he needs to make i would like um, to see it if he does <laughs> god the you good, watch good shepherd though i don't think you'll be like blown away you mean but i think you'll... i've seen i've seen the good shepherd i'm sorry i think yeah. you should watch a bronx deal i don't I think you'd think be blown I away too. But um, I think I like you will appreciate having seen it. And mm-hmm. Chaz is great in it. Yeah. Um, Raul Walsh's, I think, first film ever from 1915 called Regeneration is on this list. Haven't you, seen you it. Don't get me to care about silent Raul Walsh movies. I'm sorry, guys. Then, then it goes on to like an honorable mention list. And it's The Usual Suspects, The Warriors, The Little Murders, The Cool World. Three Days of the Condor, not a crime movie. <laughs> neither is the Warriors. Neither, <laughs> not, really neither is, is the, the Cool World. Um, the House on Ninety Second Street and North by Northwest, not a crime movie. Not a New and, York uh, movie. And Rear Window, yeah, North by Northwest, also not a New York movie. And a Most Violent Year. Oh no, no, no! This article is written because of the because of the trailer because of the trailer to a Most Violent Year. Is the reason that the movie's so fucking written. good, though. Least least surprising thing in the world. I think a most violent year is fucking rad. I think it's pretty good too. I don't know. I like margin call better than a than a uh, most a most violent year. Sure, you can be wrong if you want to. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, I think we got to be done. Well, um, I don't. I don't. We clearly don't have a lot to say about this movie. Other than yet, it we all work. yet. <laughs> I don't know how much I'm going to cut out of this thing, but we've almost gone for three hours. So yeah. we got a problem, Connor. We just don't get to talk to each other. We just anymore. don't get to talk to each other. Uh, anyway, join us next week uh, for a movie that is, uh, we have a lot to talk about with that what one. Are because, what are we watching next week? Uh, join us next week for, I'm going to say the weirdest film we will cover on this podcast. Oh, Both are we doing the contents of the movie and the series of events that led to Colin Farrell <laughs> being in this movie. We will also finally be doing the long promise Christopher Plummer, uh, Mount Rushmore. We will have a guest for that episode. It's the fucking Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, baby. Let's do it, man. Have you seen that one yet? Have you seen I have not one? seen this movie. That movie's. <laughs> uh, what's your tolerance for Terry Gilliam? Not very high. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a fun one. Um, Until then, uh, please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Uh, tell a friend. Shout out to our one listener in Singapore uh, who's very real, Connor. Connor, do you want to plug the Instagram? It's at above the title pod. Um, yep. maybe if SAG goes on strike I'll get to update it with a new post 
Uh, we'll solidarity. Uh, you think they're going to go on strike? I think they are. I have no idea. I think they are. I literally have no idea right now. Um, yeah, next week it is the Parnassus episode. Uh, finally, some good fucking food. Uh, until then, uh, fuck the New York Police Department. Stop it, I'll pack a lot.